0: Hey, what's up, ladies and gentlemen? How you doing? Ha? This episode of the podcast is brought to you by the 5-4 Club. What? Folks, listen to me. L- looking good does not need to cost a fortune. And that's why the 5-4 Club is revolutionizing the way men shop. Each month, they send you a curated box of two to three items that are handpicked to match the current season and your style. They've been helping men with fashion for over 15 years now and shipped to over 100,000 men every month. They know what they're doing. So if you don't, that's okay. 5-4 Club can help you build your wardrobe one month at a time. Because when you look good, you feel good. Right, young Jamie? He said yes. You get $120 worth of clothes for just 60 bucks a month. You can pause or cancel any time. No commitments. And as a five-four Club member, you'll also receive up to 50% off items in their online shop and access to exclusive members-only items. Free shipping and size exchanges. Ooh, go to 54club.com right now and enter the promo code rogan and they'll give you 50% off your first month's package plus a free pair of sunglasses. What is what is that you say? Yes, you heard me, bitch. 50% off your first package at 54club, spelled F I V E F O U R club.com and use the promo code rogan. 5-4-Club.com. Promo code ROGAN. All right! Yay! Dum-dum-dum-dum. Dum-dum-dum-dum. We're also brought to you by texture.com forward slash ROGAN. With recent conversation, and popular culture surrounding fake news, alternative facts, and the news media. It's important to know where your news is coming from. And Texture features some of the most trustworthy, credible publications in the world, such as Time Magazine, The New Yorker, Vanity Fair, The Atlantic, and many others. And Texture gives you access not just to your favorite magazines, but also to the latest in investigative journalism, U.S. politics, domestic, and international news. Yes. At a time where it feels like it's harder and harder to find the truth. Supporting the free press is critically important, and from its inception, Texture has supported journalism not just by offering access to great magazines, but also financially. A portion of every subscriber's fee goes directly to the publishers indeed ladies and gentlemen indeed texture the texture app has gone beyond delivering just the magazine itself they've made it easy to find and enjoy the articles you want to read with daily recommendations exclusive interactive features videos and more texture makes magazines easy and there's so many great ones out there folks okay you know time newsweek sports illustrated Uh, What are you into, Jamie? Wired? You're a Wired fan? Jamie's one of those hackers. I can tell. Texture is searchable. You can mark what you like, check out back issues, view bonus video content, and they even curate articles and magazines just for you or whoever you're giving Texture to this year. Texture is normally $9.99 a month and you get over 200 magazines. But if you sign up right now, at texture.com forward slash rogan you get a 14-day free trial why subscribe to just a couple of magazines when you can have all of your favorites on your smartphone or tablet all the time for way less plus texture was selected as one of apple's top 2016 ipad apps Ooh! start your free trial now and download the texture app Right now, Texture is offering listeners of this podcast a 14-day free trial when you go to texture.com forward slash Rogan. That's 14 days to try Texture for free when you go to texture.com forward slash Rogan. Texture.com forward slash Rogan. (gasps) Ta-da! My guest today is Tom Bilyeu. And Tom is one of the founders of Quest Nutrition, those yummy, delicious, low-sugar bars. I live off those motherfuckers. I love them. I eat those brownie ones, chocolate brownie ones. They're quite delicious. They have a host of other different foods and snacks that are also low-carb, low-sugar, and uh, good stuff. They're good to have around. It keeps you from snacking in a guilty fashion. Um. Uh, but he founded it, and he's got a bunch of other interesting shit to talk about. So, give it up for Tom Bill The Joe Rogan Podcast. Check it out. The Joe Rogan Experience. Train my day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. The infamous Jamie Countdown, and we're live, Tom. What is up, man? Tom Bill you, If you're wondering, Bill U. Bill you. People are wondering, like, how do I say like that? that? Bill U. Dude, I've eaten more of your bars than any bar. Ever in the history of bars, next to you in the Primal Kitchen bars. Whoa, All that's right. it. Well, I so take that as you're an in honor. fucking lofty Rarefied company. air, man. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's those awesome. goddamn Quest bars are the shit, Thank especially you. those chocolate brownie ones, dude. Tell me about it. You guys nailed it with those. Thank you. So what was the the, the idea behind the company? Like some low sugar, low carb, nutrition? Yeah, at the time that we were thinking of launching the company, there was nothing on the
1: market that we would eat. It either tasted terribly and was good for you or it tasted great and was horrible for you. So we wanted to create the first bar that tasted like it had sugar but didn't and metabolically speaking had a
0: great response. Dude, it's a grind, man, to, to find if, – if you try to go on a keto diet – and yeah. you, you know, you try to find like really good, healthy, delicious stuff to snack on. Like, boy, well, here's a question, Do Quest bars kick you out of ketosis.
1: No, really, no. See, if I eat a full bar, I'm going to be out, really, for sure. Yeah. but
0: it only has like nine grams of carbs.
1: Uh yeah, the of protein carbs? is high. So, it, well, it's actually
0: less than that. Depending, do you count um, net carbs or full blown? You know what? I'm very loose with it. I don't do a whole lot of counting carbs. For the most part, what I'm doing is eating whole foods. The most part I'm doing is uh, a lot of um, a lot of uh, that primal kitchen. You know that Chipotle mayo, that Chipotle lime mayo. I'm not I bullshitting. Don't. Fucking fantastic. <laughs> I might eat a case of that a month, and I'm not Whoa. bullshitting. I put it on everything because it's My super man. high fat and mm. really delicious. So I put it on eggs. Like I'll cook up a couple of eggs in the morning, and then I'll take some scoops of that Chipotle lime <laughs> mayo and just slop it on there with. Sliced jalapenos so I'm getting a lot of fat. Do you
1: know the macros on it? No, I don't calculate all that shit Really? I'm not a nerd bro. But you stay in ketosis? <laughs> you can. What? Yeah. Do you take your blood levels? I have Yeah, yeah I have. Yeah, I, mean, I do don't you... do it
0: on a regular basis. Wow. I just essentially eat I, Well, what I'm doing is for the most part if I'm eating foods, the foods that I'm eating are very high fat mm. um, Very low carbs and then 20% of the time I fuck off all right. 20% of the time. Like 20% of the time. Like, I try not to fuck off too hard, like with desserts and stuff like that. Do you like desserts? Yes. Even on a keto diet, you don't find that that's reduced? Yeah, it is reduced. But once you start eating the ice cream, you
1: yeah, remember yeah. how awesome it is. Yeah, but
0: a lot point. a lot of exogenous ketones. Okay. I use, I use that, that I don't fuck with.
1: Never done. Never? Exogenous. Ah, did I try it once? I think I did. I was told that it would, like, help with a headache, and I was like, I call bullshit. This is not a Oh, okay. For, like, all.
0: the keto flu- uh, it
1: wasn't when I had, I did have keto flu profoundly, uh, but that's what happens when you're a dumbass the first time that you try going ketogenic. How did you, um, uh, what'd you do? I went true four to one after a three day fast. Four to one, explain no. that to people. So for every gram of combined protein and carbohydrate I ate, I ate four grams of fat, which is brutally difficult to do. You're never going to do it by accident. I had a spreadsheet. And everything that I ate had to go through the math. So I had to figure Mm -hmm. out, like, what's this going to be as a total meal? Uh, You you literally have to, like, scrape every bit of oil out of the pan. Like, you've got to be hardcore. Sop up, like, if you've got Mm -hmm. cabbage or something, sop up all the oil to make sure that you're getting it all. It was hateful. I absolutely hated it. It was so disgusting. And Dom has talked about that. The palatability of 4 to 1 is very, very low. At the time, I thought I needed to do that. I was trying to do cancer prevention, uh, so I went hard, hard hardcore keto, trying to get the ratio between my blood glucose and my ketones right.
0: Were you experiencing health difficulties?
1: Uh, no. So, but at Quest, we were really trying to like experiment, like find out what's the edge of this right. stuff. We were putting millions of dollars into research, especially into cancer, hmm. um, trying to find out like, does a ketogenic diet have the positive implications on cancer that we hope it does? And um, at least in a, a clip that I saw on your show when Don was on, he was talking about that the um, the ener- the energy crisis that
0: the cells go through that are cancerous. Because um, some, some forms of cancer, yeah. Right. I think there's, there's some. Doesn't he of... think it's all of them? No. I know some people are. There was an article. Recently, about brain cancer, there was a type of brain cancer that actually lived off of fats um, that didn't respond to a low carb diet mm. I mean I believe there's several different kinds of cancer, and so i don't know if all the data's in on that right but that's nah, uh, yeah, debated so sure. so your idea was just to do it just to get yourself in a really healthy state and monitor your own yeah my thing body. was like if
1: if it has that potential, it's worth trying, right? Mm-hmm. What's a three-day fast, not a big deal, and then two weeks of being in ketosis. Going into it, I didn't know how hard it was gonna be. I didn't know what four to one was gonna feel like, mm-hmm. and I didn't know how to supplement. So it, w- it was real misery, and I really did have what they call the keto flu. You feel like you have the flu. It sucked, wow. and my whole thing is like being uber disciplined. So once I commit to something, I'm not gonna stop just because it sucks, and I wasn't smart enough to go and ask somebody, like, what do you do? Like, is there a way to supplement your way out of this uh so i just muscled through but it was total misery
0: finally i don't understand why you never tried exogenous ketones that doesn't make a lot of sense well so
1: you know peter rottia right no you don't know peter Ratia. who is he you have to immediately get him on your show so peter Ratia is a good friend of dominic dagostino so that would be an easy connect and he's a a doctor a physician Um, he did a ted talk which crushed absolutely amazing and he goes from practicing traditional medicine, and, and this is his TED talk, so this isn't me, this is him saying it, being fairly judgmental about the people that he's treating. This woman comes in, she has diabetes, and, ah, um, oh God, I think she was either there to have an amputation or she'd already had one, something. Anyway, he realizes in as he like starts breaking all this down that this is like a human being and he what they're doing isn't solving the problem so he's like somewhere the system is failing a lot of people and how do we rectify it and and as he's giving the TED talk he starts like crying it's so amazing especially getting to know him and knowing that it's totally sincere this was not a guy faking it for the camera And so ends up completely changing his life. He starts um, really trying to figure out what's going on metabolically, finds high fat, finds ketogenics. For a while was known as the, the fat man or the keto man, I forget what they called him, but long before I'd ever heard of ketogenics. And starts um, Nusi. Have you heard of Nusi? No. Nutritional Science Initiative hmm. um, raises a ton of money, and they're trying to do like real double-blind empirical studies on nutrition because they're like, eh. like there's so much guesswork in all of this. We really want to prove it. Ends up leaving that. I don't. I won't speak to why. Honestly, don't know. But ends up leaving Nusi. Um, founding a private practice as like a high-end concierge guy. Um, we were trying to get him involved at Quest just because his nutritionally, this guy's mind is unreal. And so talking to him about that stuff and him walking us through like keto flu and how you can actually supplement your way out of it and all that. But I unfortunately didn't know it at the time. Uh, so, yeah, I suffered needlessly.
0: Hmm. So um, that's interesting. The, the, the flu thing is a weird feeling, right? Because your body just feels so weak and you don't understand it. You've been eating and you, you, you almost are in denial. Like, I can't believe that this is just carbs. There's no way. Like, this is something. Something's
1: going on. Yeah, is it carbs or is it protein? I mean, I guess gluconeogenesis is turning the protein into glucose, but it is weird. Or is it that, and this I actually don't know the answer to, and and I'm now outside my realm of what I understand, so full disclosure. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there's obviously something in the micronutrients, because the people that later told me you could have supplemented your way out of this, they were talking about, and I don't remember well, but it was like magnesium and some Mm -hmm. other things. It wasn't, oh, just, you know, have more... um, carbs or more protein but i will say at a two-to-one diet you at least i didn't experience the flu at all Mm -hmm. and that was sustainable i did that for nine months and that was amazing it was transformative from an anti-inflammatory perspective it was just unbelievable so just
0: more low carb than keto totally yeah
1: so i've been low carb for a very long time because i if i am having a cheat weekend you were talking about this just before Mm -hmm. we went live if, if I'm having a cheat wake on B-Rot, right, you can hear me getting fatter. Like, it is so crazy how well my body turns a calorie into adipose tissue. It's nuts. So, so you I'd get fatter quicker. I get fat very, very fast, especially with carbohydrate. Um, but even if I spike my calories and they're all clean, I'll get fat fast.
0: Wow. And this didn't used to be the case before you tried these low-carb diets?
1: No, this was always the case. Always, oh, so, so yeah. Always it wasn't been that until cat? yeah, yeah. That's why I tried low carb. So oh. I'm so frustrated with always being like having a wet look, mm-hmm. a wet look. Yeah, what's that? Yeah, maybe I'm making that up. So that's what my um, partners and I used to refer to people like me who just have a natural smooth layer of fat. Like I have to, oh. <laughs> I have to do so much cardio to get that like dry look where you huh. know, you're just really tight, like. A massive amount of cardio and is that the case even with a like a low-carb diet like when you yeah, get, I'll to... get leaner on a low-carb diet to be sure uh, but It doesn't like if I want to be lean lean I have to do cardio. So you're essentially got a really good Adaptation body for famine. Yeah, I'll, I'll survive a famine the, the zombie apocalypse. I've got you like I'm making it through that
0: Hmm very confident do you Very watch common. Walking Dead? Because a lot of I, people that think they're going to make it, they don't make it, man. I, <laughs> I, I do like watch Walking Dead, shorter. but I'm
1: way behind. I'm on like season three. Where'd you stop? Because people are telling me I'm going to tap Glenn.
0: When they killed Glenn. Oh, wow. It's oh, a
1: so spoiler Sorry. alert, I guess, yeah. right? Yeah. Dead. Uh, Everybody knows I, I, made <laughs> I made it that far. I made it that far. But yeah, no, we're beyond that. So, but here's what I find interesting about that is I want to do oh. like some content on what are like the 10 leadership lessons you can learn from The Walking Dead because I think they're there. Like that's what I find interesting about the show
0: uh Rick is inconsistent, like, yes, I'm not buying them in this the last season. That's why I bailed out. I don't know, man. I mean, what, what leadership things are you going to learn when everyone's turned to shit and a bunch of people killing each other? All right. So
1: let's go to one that you would have seen because it's before Glenn dies. You've got the um, kid. They find him at the bar, right? Mm-hmm. they his teammates. I don't have a better word for that. Mm-hmm. His clan, whatever. They go ballistic. They start shooting. You take him back to your place because you want to help him. He paled his leg. He's hurt.
0: Do you kill him? Do you set him free? What do you do? Uh, well, it's a TV show. It's not real. <laughs>
2: You don't have to be really around the
0: guy. You'd have to know. Right. You know, I think it's part logic and part instinct when you're dealing with a situation like that. Like, how much of this guy's behavior was because he was stuck with a bunch of other shitty people? And how different is he when he's free? And how much does he listen to reason and logic? And how much is he willing to contemplate the possibility that there's a better life if everybody works together? If not, kill him. You don't want... If you think that he's immeasurably damaged like maybe he's a big liar he lies about a lot of stuff mm-hmm. and you know you can't count on him You know he's gonna be a liability and he's not gonna be an asset and He might very well try to kill you in your sleep or something like that. Yeah, you gotta kill him, right? Yeah That's,
1: That's what I find interesting about yeah. the show is it, it makes you think about stuff like that Let me
0: ask you this yeah. if something does happen like Asteroidal Impact, right? Ooh. And there's only like 10% of the people left mm-hmm. Do you want to be amongst those 10% of the people or would you rather be one of the people that died? Wow, that seems like a trick question. I want to be one of the 10%. Like that, can I just say, have you
1: read The Stand by Stephen no, King? no, oh, dude, you would love it. Yeah. So it's about sure. a superflu, right? Yeah. So it wipes out, let's say it's 10%. I don't remember what the number is, but it wipes out virtually everybody. And then the remaining people have the task of rebuilding society now. It's a Stephen King novel, so there's a lot of weird shit going on. Right. But that captured my imagination so profoundly when I read it. I read it probably 15 years old dude i still think about that i think that would while i wouldn't want it because inevitably a lot of people that you love end up being in the 90 Mm. percent so that would suck um but if it happened it would be fascinating to see how we rebuild but if you've seen the road that's a pretty dark take on what happens but
0: um, yeah i'm a little
1: more optimistically
0: i mean look it could be wonderful if you really can survive and you really find a way to live off the land and you find a good group of people and you all work in coordination and you cooperate and you have a wonderful little civilization, and you take care of each other, or it could get horribly ugly. And no then you question. could be dealing with cannibals and marauders and people invading you. And where, where do you fall? Hmm. What, I, what do you mean? 90%, 10%. Oh, 100%, Absolutely. 90%. Really? <laughs> Hit me in the head with that rock. Wow. Fuck all this, dude. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to be one of those survivors when there's nothing left. You know, you don't want to be one of those people seeing if you can eat a charred foot. <laughs> you know, because you're super starving. <laughs> well put. Just, um, I mean, maybe it's a cop-out. Look, the only reason why we're here is because monkeys fucked when they were living in trees. You know, and they figured out a way to get to become a person over who knows how many millions of generations or whatever it's been. But I think, um... If you really stop and think about like, what your life would be if everybody out there was dead and there was only like 10% of the people left, first of all, 90% of the people dead, that's a lot of stinking, rotten bodies. you got to get is. through that. That's going to be awful. There's going to be 10%. What's the odds that any of you fuckers know how to work electricity yep. or know how to get a generator going or um, know how to re-up a power plant? Like, What if a power plant goes down? What if uh, the grid is down? Do you know how to fix a car? Do you even understand how a car works? Like most people don't. Ten percent. If you you could get really unlucky and get ten percent of the people who don't know shit (laughs) and are just looking for a job, yep, those are the people that survive. No question. If that's the case, we might not make it. Do you know the the United the not the United States but the human population got down to uh, I think they think as low as like. I want to say 7,000 people at one point in time yeah, after the, the eruption of, of a or like super volcano. Yeah, there was some super volcano eruption that there's a, a theory that it dropped the human population down to an unbelievably low level. Mm. And it was not that long ago either. I think they think it was like 60,000 years ago or something like that. Whoa. I didn't know the, the timing,
1: but yeah, yeah, I had heard that, which is pretty mm, fascinating. Not good. Not good. If that's real, 60,000 years ago. Especially when you think of genetic diversity, that's really terrifying.
0: Yeah, maybe that accounts for a lot of our fuck-ups. You know, it's interesting, too, when they also they keep finding these new humans, you know? Hmm. Like these, fossilized, you're talking about? Yeah, like new humans that uh, they didn't know existed. Like, they found one in Russia fairly recently, like mm-hmm. an offshoot of humans. Like, we just kind of got lucky to, to make it to this. Uh, you know, not Have you an, read Homo Deus? No. So,
1: Noah Yuval Harari also wrote Sapiens. He talks about that sort of thing in both of his books, like how... Is it luck? What do we have? Like, what made humans the apex predator? And mm-hmm. looking at, you know, our ability to be social, but where does that come from? Like, when you look at, so the way that he ended up defining it is, the reason that humans become the apex predator is because, unlike an ant, which is actually very, very impressive with how they can organize large number uh, of ants, beings, whatever you want to classify it as, um, they can't do it flexibly. So it's like we have sort of a pre-written code and these are the things that we do and that's it. And you follow in the line, you go to food, like you build the colonies, it's always the same way. Humans can organize in similarly large numbers, but they can do it flexibly. So you can mm. organize and watch a NASCAR race. You can organize and fight a war. You can organize and build a church. Like, whatever the ways that we want to organize. And one of the things he says is at the heart of that is our ability to convey um, kinship through something other than genetic relations. So um, what he refers to it as is, like, that the grand fiction, the narrative that we tell each other, which is often religion or whatever. But it lets people who've never met, like— Uh, The way I always like to think of it, imagine two guys that meet each other and they both ride Harleys. Never ever met, but they click, right? Because they share that thing, which is a stand-in for a belief system. So that, to me, is is pretty interesting as to whether like and, and his hypothesis is the reason that we ended up taking over Neanderthals and all that was because because of that, because we could organize using symbology, using metaphor. We were able to organize more flexibly in larger numbers and really be accurate with how to attack and things like that
0: so that we could eliminate a rival clan. Oh, totally makes sense. I mean, that's, uh, it's one of the more fascinating aspects of being a person, right? That we can assume so many different forms and culture and behavior and uh, the patterns that we follow. But you got to think if we got down to 7,000 people, we're pretty lucky. We're pretty <laughs> no lucky question. that that was, wasn't like a full wipeout. I'm fucking terrified of Yellowstone dude that's one of those as you look closely at it it's like uh i just pretend that that's not a threat i don't know what else to do there's nothing you can do but if it's if it goes it's a global one like it's a real problem globally i mean it's locally it's a disaster but globally it's it's a real problem it's gonna cloud the skies it's gonna put us into nuclear winter those 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 big ones like the one that they think see did you find anything on that one yeah What, what where was it South, I want to say Indonesia? South Asia, yeah. Yeah.
2: There's something crazy on it, too. It said there's a couple studies on how many people were left, and it said there was roughly maybe a 1,000 reproductive adults. Oh, some said as low as 40 reproductive pairs, which would be like 80 people. There'll still be kids, maybe, but that's, that's so, rough. That's rough. Yeah. What? And the amount of... Uh, Jesus Christ.
0: Most likely, there was uh, a drastic dip, and then 5,000 to 10,000... Bedraggled homo sapiens struggled together for a pitiful little clumps, hunting and gathering for thousands of years until the late Stone Age. Wow, when we humans began to recover. Holy fuck. This but there was a time. Hold on. <laughs> um, we dan- damn near went extinct. Wow. So, yes, yeah, 70,000 B.C. So a little bit more than 70,000 years ago. A volcano. Hold on. Hold on. Uh, called Toba in Sumatra uh, in Indonesia, went off, blowing roughly 650 miles of vaporized rock into the air. It's the largest volcanic eruption we know of, dwarfing everything else. Holy shit, man.
2: That's comparison
0: to... Wow, that's interesting to see that. You see Mount St. Helens, the amount of uh, ejected material versus... Wow. So so it got down to as low as 40 mating pairs?
2: A, a, A study suggests that, yeah. Holy shit. Wow.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're just at the whim of the natural forces that make mountains. Mm. And there's a giant volcano, a caldera volcano under Yellowstone, and I think like a week ago they had something like 1500 earthquakes. Wasn't there like some some stuff? Jesus. <laughs> Taking like a month in a month period of time, they 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 it was like really recently they talked about this, how many earthquakes they had. Over a very short period of time, they're just constant and consistent. Just yeah. boom, boom. That's boom, crazy. Boom, boom. In June. June. it's at 400. Okay. There was something uh, in, uh, I believe it was in July. It was another one, like really recently. But, you know, that just that kind of shit. Hmm. That there can be 400 earthquakes in a month. Like, what? Yeah, 878. Yeah. <laughs> two weeks later. That's Jesus. it. That's the thing I was looking at. 878 earthquakes in two weeks. That's what it was. So it's like twelve hundred plus earthquakes in a month and in two weeks. <laughs> that's nuts. Uh, and that's not much, you know. It's a small earthquake, but it's the the idea that there's so significant volcanic right. activity under something that we didn't even know was a volcano until like I want to say like a decade or two ago. They they used satellite imagery to figure out that it was a mm-hmm. caldera they didn't even know big it is right that you can you can't see it until you get far enough up that you really start to see the crater that's what's nuts yeah they realized what it is it must have been like a horror movie when they pulled back and went oh my god oh my Mm. god it's like that scene in um uh twilight zone and like to serve man it's a cookbook i haven't seen that you ever seen that one no i've seen precious few um Twilight Zones. To be honest, To Serve Man is one of the best ones. Yeah, it's a bunch of aliens come down here. Spoiler alert: <laughs> it's from 1950, fucks. Um, but they come down here and they realize um, that they, they, they. Somewhere along the line, people realize that there's something going on, and that they're taking these people aboard their spaceship, and they're not coming back. And then at the end, they've left this book, and the book they thought to serve man got it, got was it, like it, it. they wanted to serve us, and it turns out right. it's a cookbook. <laughs> but it's too late. They're already aboard the spaceship, ready That's to get awesome. eaten. It's dope. Dude, the Twilight Zone has some awesome endings. I have to give it that. Well, they had such a bounty of premises. Like, their premises mm. are incredible. Well, like To this day, if you stop and think about all the... you Remember William Shatner with the... Um, Uh, Did you ever see that one? I think I've seen like three and I don't remember them. He he went to a diner and there was a place that he uh, was at that had like one of those little um, like a fortune teller box. It was like these Mm. to have jukeboxes, you know, that were in. Do you you ever see a jukebox in a diner? Yeah. Yeah. So like you'd be sitting at a table and you can actually control the music. Mm. This thing that you're seeing up there, he had uh, a fortune teller and you'd put in a scent. A one cent coin and ask him a question, a yes or no question, and it would give you answers. And he became obsessed with it. And started started fucking with them. And it was like it was just getting too close to reality. I was gonna say, is it coming true? Like, is he? Yeah, yeah. I don't want to give away any much. Okay, so no too spoilers much. on spoiler. That. But it was just a great show, man. I mean, it's just they tried to bring it back, right? But I think it tanked. When did they try to bring it back? <laughs> God,
1: I want to say early 90s, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Hmm. I could be way off on the date, but with yeah, they definitely tried to bring it back.
0: Without Rod Sterling, it's going to be tough. And I wonder how many of them were actually written by Rod Sterling.
1: A good question. Because
0: he was always the host of it. Imagine if he was just the host and he really didn't have nothing to do with it.
2: They brought it back in the 80s and in the
0: 90s. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard. When you get something like that, first of all, you got to pay a lot for it. Because I know that was one of the reasons why they switched over the uh, Tower of Terror ride at Disneyland to Guardians of the Galaxy, was that they couldn't come to a licensing agreement with uh, the Twilight Zone. Really? Yeah. Because the Tower of Terror ride was always about the Twilight Zone. Mm. You know, and Rod Sterling would come out in the beginning of it, and that was the the whole ride was about this haunted tower. Right. You know, and you get in it, and it just takes you for this crazy fucking ride. And uh, they somehow or another couldn't come to some sort of a deal, so they decided to turn into the Guardians of the Galaxy ride. Hmm. Seems, yeah. Uh, if you have a deal with Disney,
1: yeah, it seems like you'd want to keep that rock and roll. Keep that dude. Yeah. Somebody got greedy.
0: I, I would agree with that. That's a big part of business, isn't it? Yeah, Somebody just gets a little crazy, yes. does a little too much Adderall. It's a little fired up gets cocky. Yeah,
1: you'd be surprised how often that happens like yeah. behind closed doors Entrepreneurship is it gets weird. It's um, sure ego. like you were lit You're just dealing with going back to your point about <laughs> these are monkeys that learned how to have sex and then do something uh, You feel that sometimes it's and
0: also funny. I would imagine Being an entrepreneur like organizing a team of people that are gonna work together in harmony yeah, and not stab each other in the back not trip each other up with office politics, not get in the way with a bunch of bullshit social issues between each other. Like, how do you structure that? Like, I would, Im- I mean, I can't imagine what it'd be like to run a significant business and have a lot of it being dependent upon. The way the people in the office that you don't even know you hire them the right. way they interact with each other
1: yeah so one you have to get really good at thin slicing people you have to be able to very rapidly identify like are these going to be people that are going to make this a better place to work which is one of the things that i think is most important like forget are they good at their job that's important too you got to know that but are they going to make this a better place to work? And the, some of the biggest mistakes I made in my career have been keeping people because they were good at their job, even though they were toxic to the environment. Oh, so and it's a Walking Dead type scenario. Dude, coming back again. I'm telling you, like there are real lessons that you can learn mm. about, like entrepreneurship and stuff like that, where it, it, from pop culture. So yeah, that, that would be one of them. That was really intense. Uh, figuring that one out. That was a hard lesson. And then knowing when your business has transitioned. So in the beginning, you're a startup, nobody knows who you are. You don't have enough revenue. So you need people that are going to just bust ass. They're going to come in, they're going to be hardcore hustlers, get it done, whatever it takes, 2am on a Friday, they're going to be there for you. Mm. But then at some point, and the reason, by the way, that you're that you can make that exchange is you can't pay them a lot. They don't have a lot of skills. So what they have to offer is they're willing to work hard. So you're essentially throwing human capital at whatever problems you have. Mm. Now, if you get the right people motivated and you're a lead from the front kind of guy, like when we first started Quest, I was wearing a hairnet every day, lab coat. I was making protein bars. And I would walk in and say, what's the worst job? And whatever the guy said, this is the worst job today. Oh, it's a little sticky, whatever. So this station's actually the worst. So I would take that station and I would rock it with a smile on my face. I would be upbeat, energetic, and I would just outwork everybody. And the reason I did that was I knew when the day came that it was going to be a Friday at 2 a.m. and they're all going to want to go home. And But we've got to get this batch done that no one would ever question my work ethic. So when I said, guys, I need you to stay, like they would be there. Um, Also, because of where we were, when you're in manufacturing, you're inevitably in the inner city. It's the only place you can afford that kind of real estate. So we were hiring from the surrounding neighborhoods. So we're literally in Compton hiring people that grew up in the inner cities, hardcore. And I remember my first lesson in hope. And one of the guys came up to me. He was just killing himself. He's doing such an amazing job and just always working, putting in the hours, doing whatever it takes. And he came up to me one day and he said, you know, you care more about my success than my own mother. And he was Whoa. like, I never had a vision of my future. I didn't even want to look at it. It was because his sister had been shot to death in the heart with an AK-47 in his front yard when she was like 12. So I mean, it's just, there's so many stories like that. You can't imagine another guy held his father while he bled to death from a gunshot wound to the head. I mean, just nuts. And so hearing him say that, I was like, he was saying it as a way to explain why he was so committed, why he was working so hard. Cause basically he didn't use these words, but basically I've never had hope before. And this is really fucking exciting. So, but then understanding where is that transition, right? Where do you go from, okay, I need a bunch of hustlers. We don't have the money to throw at really skilled labor. So I need to throw it at people that'll just work really, really hard. But then at some point it's what I call the dragon begins to eat its own tail. So you're growing so fast. You're getting so big that without the systems, without professional management in place like you you just can't get bigger because people start stepping on each other's toes it starts getting confusing the leadership isn't close enough to everybody that that sort of do or die mentality that they would see in me they would see me on the line they would see how i would work it's not there anymore right so now Mm -hmm. there's layers between you and it started to fall apart that that was a hard lesson so realizing that whoa like I've got to now start bringing in professional managers that actually know what they're doing, that have done this before, built out production studios um, or manufacturing so that we can really do it right, that we can put systems in place to take care of people. But then you get bureaucracy, which is like a nightmare, especially for the hustlers. So then they Mm. feel disenfranchised. But it's the only way for you to grow. And how do you deal with all of that shit? So... Yeah, it,
0: it is weird. I've got to imagine also, it's, it, like you want the people that are working for you to have some sort of a stake in the success of the business. So, like organizing that mm. has got to be difficult. Like, how much of a percentage to, of the business do you give to the workers? Like, you have to make to incentivize them to like really innovate, and there's got to be something on the line for them. There, there's something, some sort of a reward, I would imagine. Right? Will you be shocked how?
1: Many people don't agree with that. Now, I'm with you. And to me, it's great. And I guess it's uh, what's the the argument against it, that you're not going to get anything for it, that it's nice in idea, but they won't actually work harder. They won't work smarter. They they just they're not in a position to um, bring benefit from getting that. But Hmm. here's what I'll this is the argument I've always given to people that say that. You're not going to get the benefit from them maybe that you would get from you. Like I get equity is triggering you in a certain way and you've got a certain skill set and so you can execute against that. But especially now from millennials down, the sense of working for the man, working for some other, like there's no stability in that equation anymore. You used to trade 40 years of your life because you could just kind of count on the fact that you would be there for 40 years. Those days are gone, man. People spend something like point eight years or something at a given job, and then they move on. The best way to get a raise is to jump to another company. So millennials, dude, they jump around, around, around. Mm. So there's no longer this like, hey, um, I'm going to give you stability and you're going to give me like an adequate level of performance. So those days are gone. Now, my thing with ownership is, one, tie it to being there until an exit so that what I'm trying to incentivize is you taking me all the way across the finish line. So if you don't take me across the finish line, you don't get anything. Fair enough. And then on top of that, just... The sense of really being able to say, I own a piece of this company is so empowering for people, especially for people for whom that's never been an option. Maybe it was never an option for their parents. Like they, they've never even heard of a company doing something like that. Being able to go to literally the lowest person on the totem pole and say, I'm going to give you, it's going to be small, obviously, but I'm going to give you some percentage ownership in this company. And now, literally, we are all owners. So you have like the most selfish incentive to make this company successful ever. Now, mm. where this gets tricky.
0: Can I ask you? You're stop you
1: guys right yeah. stop here. What
0: What is across the finish line?
1: To sell a company, so oh, or oh, IPO, okay. right? Okay. So you either sell or IPO. And I was going to say, what gets tricky is like uh, the company I'm building now, Impact Theory. I don't plan to sell it. What is that? So Impact Theory is a traditional narrative studio. So think Disney. So we're building the making next movies. Disney. Uh, you're building movies, the next tv shows comics how grandiose you're yeah. building
0: the next disney how right. dare you well bigger than disney I guess. what just to, just Jesus to be honest Christ. i don't want to yeah I don't how can you possibly do that you're gonna have a, a what are you calling it again what's the name of it uh impact theory are you gonna have like impact theory land in paris no probably not but only
1: because follow mm. me here only because by the time that we'll be able to do that because i'm gonna need a similar timeline right i'm gonna need 50 60 years to pull this off i'm not right. that spastic okay um And by then, virtual virtual reality reality. or augmented reality. It just won't make sense to build out the physical structures.
0: Right. I guess. Some people want to rock it old school. They do. And oh, man, Jesus, we
1: could really get into that about how the world's about to bifurcate and you're going to get between people who augment themselves, brain augmentation, and Mm. people who refuse to. Did you read Fahrenheit 451? No. Oh, dude. Cool part in the book. All right. So the world splits. Knowledge is dangerous. So we just burn books offhand. and. It creates a really stable society. So most people are all for it. But you have these people who are like, fuck that. Like, I want to read. You don't get to tell me what to think. And so they move off into the woods. And I remember reading that going... I can actually see something like that happening. And I think the moment that that's going to happen is when humans begin to augment themselves, not to overcome like cochlear implants. You were deaf. Everybody gets that Um, retinal replacements and things. Okay. You couldn't see people get that, but when it becomes, no, no, no. I just want to raise my IQ. I want to be able to process data faster. That's when people are going to be like, fuck that. And you're going to get a bifurcation. Now, how weird does it get? Because now the reason I am convinced that people are going to do this. AI is going to get real, real fast. Even if real fast is 50 years, like it's going to get really compelling and you're going to find people just to keep up with artificial intelligence. You have to augment yourself. Mm. Otherwise you just accept that this stuff is going to outpace you and I, I guess I'm just a lowly human now. So I think it is going to happen. I don't think there's any question about that. But
0: I also don't think there's any question, when that starts happening, some people will refuse. Well, if we really do augment ourselves to keep up with artificial reality, artificial reality is supposed to change like 10,000 years of advancements in the first two weeks once it starts augmenting itself. Once artificial reality figures out how to r- do a better job of creating artificial reality, which it's absolutely going to do, if it can learn and actually create. Right. We were just talking about this with Brendan Shaw, who was in here earlier, about the movie uh, Alien Covenant. We gave away spoiler alert. Did you see that movie? I haven't. Well, there's one of the things in there is these robots, these artificially intelligent robots, and um, they realized that giving them creativity was a huge mistake. And so they, they have, don't have creativity in the new models. It's really fascinating. Because yeah. if you do give some sort of an artificially intelligent creature thing, whatever you want to call it, that you make, once it starts becoming sentient and creating things itself... It's going to look at its own wiring. It's going to go, why the fuck did you connect that to that when you could just do it this way? And why look at its own code? Like, what's this pathway? Like, that's kind of redundant. How about we just do it this way? How about you open up that end of it? How about people looking at things because they're worried about mortality and all these different, Mm -hmm. you know, their own own demise and the finality of death and that this is all tripping them up. And they really should be thinking about this way. And then, boom, they're off to the races. And in a week, two weeks, three weeks, they're down the road. Thousands of years of human evolution. Yeah. Have you, you hear about the Facebook AI experiment? Yes. Yes. Fascinating. Yeah.
1: They started Start talking, talking in, a, in a new language. Yeah. So that nobody fuck. could listen.
0: And everybody pulled the plug. Like, <laughs> okay. hey. That was the
1: first one that I was like, oh shit. Like I didn't think of even the, the most simple ways that yeah. they could just rip, step to the side and like ice us out. You're, you're absolutely right. It's going to happen fast. It's going to get weird. It the question could. is, does it become the matrix or what does it become?
0: It could be something unimaginable. I mean, it could be a real God. I mean, we really could create, and that's not a bad use of the word. And the the term, when you're talking about artificial intelligence, I think one of the problems with that is we start thinking robot, oh, you're Mm. making an artificial robot. You're making a system, okay? And this system has desires, and this system has goals, and it has, if if you're somehow or another engineering the ability to create and innovate into uh, this intelligence that you're cre- I mean, you create—I mean, call it artificial all you want, but it's real. It's right there. So I don't know what it is. I, don't know. I think the problem with the term artificial reality is we start thinking about science fiction. We start thinking about robots and things like that. Mm. You're making a thing that thinks for itself, and it doesn't just do things like your computer does things. No, no, no. This does things without you asking it to. That's where shit gets super weird. And then it starts examining. If you give it the ability to create and the desire to create, it's going to start examining all the different systems around it and replicating it and figuring out far better solutions than our stupid little monkey minds are going to be able to do. Mm -hmm. And within a decade or two decades, we're probably, if we do augment ourselves to keep up with it, we're going to be unrecognizable. We're going to be all locked into some gigantic worldwide wireless information hub where we're exchanging ideas and emotions with each other it's it's i mean having the access to information on just demand like we do now is probably changing us in some really profound ways that we're not even aware of right now and the idea of this becoming just a baby step and some infinite journey Mm. once sentient ai goes live it could I mean, when guys like Elon Musk are terrified, <laughs> you should be paying attention. Yeah. The people who are poo-pooing that. I'm like, man, I don't know. That guy seems smart. Yeah. Yeah, we, we have to be
1: insanely thoughtful. And I think, and look, I, I am a neophyte. I'm not the guy to listen to. And you should be listening to people like Elon Musk on the topic. But my gut instinct is... It's the underlying drives, and you talked about that. Once you give them the drive to create, now it gets weird. So what are the things that you imbue them with at the earliest level? That has to be decided way fucking early. So imagine if you imbue the AI at Facebook with a desire to connect to their human overlords and communicate effectively and make sure that they're kept in, all that stuff. Like, That's going to give you a very different result than failing to give them the desire to, you know, please or whatever, like humans have a desire to connect with each other. They have empathy, they have compassion. And it is only in the rare case of a true sociopath that that kind of thing is missing. And we see if you think of a sociopath as essentially AI gone wrong, we see the kind of damage that they can wreck on the world. So you you have to be so thoughtful about what that underlying um, desire system is the thing that propels them
0: forward. Yeah, and giving them the ability to rewire whatever that desire system is. Mm. If they decide that there has to be some sort of uh, an, there's some sort of reward for competing, so if they decide they're going to compete, and then they start looking at how they comp- how their 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 thought process is is, is arranged, how their coding is arranged, mm. and they go, well, this is not the most efficient way for us to compete most efficient way for us to compete is to be completely ruthless and not worry about biological life at all. Oh, well, and then- let,
1: let's get into that though. So yeah. have you seen the studies that they've done on, um, trying to figure out, like, so if you heard, obviously you've heard, nice guys finish last, right? Mm -hmm. So a guy named Eric Barker wrote this book called Barking Up the Wrong Tree. He covered, I forget who did the actual studies, forgive me, because I'm now attributing it to Eric Barker, and he was just talking about somebody else, but they ran these studies where they wanted to find out um, do nice guys finish last or not? And what they found looking at the data, nice guys finish last, and they finish first. So if you're a nice guy and you let people take advantage of you all the time, you're just going to get trod upon. But if you're a nice guy and people know, like, whoa, you're a nice guy and you want to do great things for you, um, and I call this the keanu reeves effect like look how far that guy's gone it's unbelievable his career is unimaginably great and when you hear people talk about him like just by he's so quiet and private but behind the scenes everybody's like he's a good dude i've never met him i can't tell you but just like you hear that over and over and over he's Mm -hmm. a good dude good dude good dude and i think that that's created a lot of the opportunities in his life so somebody uh created this um Basically, contests where they said submit your um, your AI and they're going to compete in a contest to see who can essentially. It's called the prisoner's dilemma. So, in the prisoner's dilemma, goes something like this. And hopefully, I I nailed this first shot here. The prisoner's dilemma is: let's say you and I were both arrested. Now we know that we actually committed the crime. We did it together. We're arrested. We're now put in separate cells to be interrogated. We can't communicate at all. If we both stay silent, we only get one year. If I rat you out, but you don't rat me out, then I go off scot-free and you get five years. If you rat me out and I don't rat you out, vice versa. And if we both rat each other out, then we get like three years or something. So the best thing in no uncertain terms is one year, right? We both stay silent, but you never know what the other person is going to do. So right. And you can get zero by ratting the other person out. So it's actually two Your advantage in a one-off to just say, yep, fuck him, he did it.
0: Until he gets out of jail and kills you.
1: So there's that. And so that gets into this thing. And so they said, what we have to do is let them play it multiple times so that you have the equivalent of he gets out of jail and then he kills you. Right. And what they found, they had these really complicated algorithms, ones where, like, they're taking all these factors into play, uh... And ultimately, they had people that their algorithms that were like the pure bad guy, always taking advantage, the pure nice guy, never taking advantage. And then the one that won was the simplest piece of code. I think it was two lines of code and it was code named tit for tat. So it goes in. It assumes you're going to be a good guy. So it stays silent the first time. But if you rat me out, then the next time I rat you out. And what it does is it. It. Because you had all these different algorithms that don't know each other competing, mm. all trying their best strategy. And what it found was tit for tat was ultimately the one that won because it would actually other ones that were learning from your behavior. It was so easy to predict. Also, people that led with something good, they ended up in a virtuous cycle forever. So tit for tat ends up being the best strategy. So from that perspective, actually be interesting because it's not always a thing you think like mercilessness doesn't necessarily win. And so finding, like, what is that equivalent in the machine world, right? And it comes back to what you were talking about. What's the reward, right? So yeah. once you know what the reward is,
0: then you can have a, a better mm. guess as to where they'll settle out. And then their ability to code themselves. I mean, yeah. I feel like if you have an artificial intelligence and you give it the ability to create a new artificial intelligence mm. and in el- eliminate whatever possible restrictions or firewalls or whatever we've put on it, yeah. So once they start
1: writing their own code, we're fucked. That well not necessarily. It comes down to <laughs> but we could be, right? So it comes down to whether they want uh they want a relationship with us or not. And that's why I think the real race is not to let AI get very far ahead. So AI will follow an exponential curve. So it will eventually be so rapid, right? So exponentials are simple doublings. Um, so most people think linear. So if I say I'm going to take um, 30 steps, I'll end up about 30 yards away. But if I take 30 exponential steps, so I go first one yard, then two yards and four yards and eight, then sixteen. Um, Thirty doublings is like a billion uh, meters. So you're like around the earth 26 times or something crazy. So wow. an, an exponential curve can get freaky. But like before you get to those like really astronomical, the, the elbow of the curve you could be making decisions along that path and this is definitely where I feel like oh god do I really know enough about this to say I'll hypostulate from an ignorant standpoint and say in there somewhere as you can see like this is really taking off you can leverage what you're learning from the AI before it becomes a sort of all-powerful being that can do whatever it wants and we can then begin the augmentation process in humans which I think is inevitable.
0: Yeah I think that's definitely inevitable. It is fascinating when you think of the possibilities like that there's we're really just speculating As to what's going to be invented and how it's going to be implemented and what effect it's going to have on society It's uh, it's a really amazing time to be alive in that sense because I feel like we are literally on some sort of a launching pad Watching it happen looking in a bunch of different directions trying to find out which one's going to go live first And then the facebook ai thing happens and everybody's like, oh, jesus. Look at that. It's happening right there Like wow, okay. They shut it down. They shut it down. Okay. We're good for now You know that I'll,
1: i'll admit that one gave me pause well, and I'm we pretty are, techno-optimist, but that gave me pause. We're
0: incredibly imperfect, the the human animal, with its emotions and fears and uh, all the weirdness of us, all our anxiety, all our uh, contemplating the possibilities, the ego, all the different variables that uh, we take into our lives and society and culture and civilizations. These are like really ineffective ways to exist and, and thrive, but they're, they're animal ways mm-hmm. integrated into this new, hard one zero culture like this this new binary thing this you know computer code uh, operating systems internet information data engineering all these different like really hard things and then inside these hard i mean by hard meaning like you know like a like a an intersecting line hits another wall and then there's a building and then there's steel glass all these things that humans have made but they're all like ab- absolute things, and then with us, you have like, wow, I wonder, boy, what's going to happen? Do people like me? And you have all these weird, mm. th- real human um, f- feelings and uh, variables, and you know maybe weaknesses that are we're not going to be able to compete if we hold on to all those. All the things that make us amazing, that make crazy movies and great books, the creativity that allows someone to make an incredible fantasy painting or whatever the fuck it is Mm. that that it comes out of us in our creations, we're going to have to get rid of that we're going to keep up with the AI. The it's AI has no, no use for that shit.
1: Yeah, sort of. So imagine, here's something that I find interesting, and I, I admittedly don't know how this plays out when something simply has a, the instructions to read your lines of code, right? So your code will tell you what to do, and sure, there's elements where it plugs in a variable and stuff, and it'd probably be actually quite hard to build in things like creativity and stuff like that. But one thing that I find fascinating about humans, and I hope that there's a corollary in AI, is... If you damage a human's ability to feel emotion, they can't make decisions. So, I found that so fascinating. You literally they can they're normal in every other respect. Do you know VS Ramachandran? No. So one of the most famous neuroscientists working today, an amazing human being, done awesome studies on stuff like this. So what happens when people's brains get damaged, you can say so?
0: If you, if you damage them, but what if they're born with this issue? Like, what if they have, like, some sort of a, an, a My a gut disorder, is it'll work either makes way. Makes them a sociopath? Uh, well, it doesn't make them,
1: this one in particular doesn't make them a sociopath, but what it does is make it impossible for them to, so if I said, hey, um, do you want to go get lunch? Uh, mm-hmm. We can either get um, Chinese or Thai and... You just you you can rationalize why you would prefer a tie, but you ultimately can't make a decision because you need that emotion to tell you what to do. Now, emotions, the theory goes, are tied to your subconscious and the subconscious can process data faster and in vaster quantities. So what it's doing is instead of then feeding you information in the form of words, it just feeds you a feeling and then you go based on that feeling. But without that depth of um, information being processed and handed up in the form of an emotion a human can't make a decision which i've literally as i was reading about that i was like no no no, man i'd be able to i'd be able to like i'd be able to reason my way around it but i know better than that it's crazy the human mind is nutso so the reason i hope that there's some corollary is that you need to build into ai for it to function properly right because nobody knows how to build general ai yet right and i like to think that part of that is going to be the safety valve of they have to have emotions to give them that sort of non-pure analytical, it's got to be super flexible, right? Because like strict analysis, let's go Star Trek for a second. So Spock, right? Not always able to do what needs to be done. You need the human who can be nimble and can read like all the ambiguities and morality and things like that and, and finally make a decision. So there are times where logic is going to let you down. So I'm hoping that because they will need, I hope this grand thing that in humans manifests as emotions i'm hoping they need something similar because in that you can program like we were talking earlier about how do you make the desire right the desire to do something if you can build in what i'll call goodness just for lack of a better word if you can build in goodness into that a desire to connect a desire to help um you could in theory create benevolent ai
0: Mm. That's interesting. And, and um, this is me riffing. I am not an no, expert No, 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 but it, it, there's, there's, it just makes sense. It, it also makes sense that emotions might be required to take action, that you have to have some sort of a reason to take action. If you don't have a biological imperative, right, if you're not worried about breeding or your social status or what, what is causing you to move forward. And if you made a perfect AI that was emotion-free, would it just sit there idly and do nothing? Because there's no reward to it that's worth risking its existence or doing anything to change the environment around it other than perhaps the worry about the power shutting off and even then if it's not worried about existence if it doesn't have any fear if it doesn't have any emotion where it's considering the potential of death like why why would it act Yeah, and I think that would sit there. I think at some point in the code,
1: you have to write something that compels them to do something. So if you think of human beings as we exist now as like the first attempt at sentient AI, and I think that's a pretty plausible way to look at us, you realize we are by nature an active species. So we go into any environment, we try to figure it out first and then dominate it. And no matter where you put us, that's what we try to do. You put us in the Arctic, we're going to try to tame the cold. You put us on the plains uh, uh, in, in Middle America and we're going to hunt the bison. I mean, it's just what we do, right? So you've got the drive of survival, um, but you also just have that, that exploration gene. And maybe that's because that's how you avoided everybody dying of one plague because you just constantly wanted to spread out and dominate new dominion. Um, but that's interesting. And so at, at some level, that's a decision when you think about AI. So somebody, whatever, blind um, evolution, fine. But something has made that decision for us. And in AI, it will have to be a very cognizant decision And I think we'll have to to get to true general AI. I think so many layers will have to be laid down of things like that. Oh, this is an active robot. it never just sits idly. It always is looking for, and what 's that thing? connection to be of service like decisions like that will have to be made mm. now. what do you do with the psycho who 's like i 'm going to create AI that takes that open source because this will inevitably be open source, and I switch the variable from be nice to crush the skull of right so you know, no question, there are all kinds of problems, but it is it is so interesting to me to think about this stuff.
0: It is. It's also interesting to think of why people are so attracted to the romantic ideas of like living off the land. Like as technology is getting more and more complex, you're seeing more of these reality shows where people are like uh, living the subsistence existence mm. in like Alaska and you know, salmon fishing and chopping their own wood for fire. We're like, yeah, look at them. They're they're, they're existing in a very closed loop system. You know, like when you're, um, when you're looking at like Plains Indians or something like that, we romanticized the day. They used all of the bison. They used the hide for their clothes and they, they just did what they needed to stay alive. And there was no innovation. If you were born, Birth to death. You wouldn't see any change right. in the civilization. You would see essentially just like bows and arrows, chasing bison, making campfire, picking up the teepee when the when the herd moves, following them ad nauseum. Continue. You know, it's uh there. That's very romantic to us right now, particularly romantic. I think it kind of always was in some way because I think we've always been aware that. This thing, once it gets going, once the momentum gets rolling in this, uh, you know, as we we're saying, exponential change, it's just chunk, 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 It's just stacking on top of mm-hmm. each other. And then we all know, like, it's gotten to a weird, unmanageable position during our lifetimes as far as information is concerned. Right. I mean, when I was a kid, you had to read books. You, you know, if you wanted to watch something on TV, you had to be there when it came on. You know, the, and then you saw it once, and that was a wrap, you mm-hmm. know. And you had to get see... Reruns is the only way you could see something again. Oh, I remember this episode. This is a rerun. Yep. You, know, you couldn't choose when to have it. Now you can choose everything all the time on your phone. You're carrying it around your pocket. It works for hours and hours of video. The input that you have into that, it's like you could create your own content. You can make your own videos. It's a. I mean, how many fucking people are on YouTube that have millions and millions and millions of videos, of hits, rather, of their videos, and just... All these people tuning into their content, like, co- all over the world. And that just the idea that this is happening in our lifetime. It didn't exist 20 years ago, and it's now, like, one of the most impactful things in the history of human nature. You've got to go back to, like, the printing press for anything to have remotely as much of an impact on the culture as the Internet itself. That's crazy. It's in our life. It's crazy, I know. How old are you? 41. So you remember probably when the Internet was clunky. When yeah, it was just like, sure. like you know, you were probably real young and like probably 17 or something like that And you first I didn't even heard know about what AOL. What was
1: when I was 18 it was the first time somebody
0: said the word, hey, we should get email accounts when we go to college. I was like, what the hell is an email? See, account? that's the right year because you got all the way to like high school and into college before it started affecting you. You had to live my first like computer a regular person. I until I
1: was a junior in college. Whoa. Yeah. Didn't have AOL until I graduated. So I was in my early 20s before I'd ever logged on
0: to the internet you've got mail it's crazy yeah i didn't uh i didn't get online until 94 i moved to la and uh, my friend robbie who actually worked at a computer store before he was a comedian he uh he taught me about it you're way ahead of me i didn't get on until 98 99 you know what i did as soon as i found out as soon as i got online i started downloaded ufo files I was like, well, these UFO reports. What? Are, what's in there? I was completely convinced. That's hilarious. I was like, I'm going to find the, the truth. It's online. You could download it. And you could download it. It would take forever. And we'd be like, chunk, 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 because of 14.4 modem. Chunk, oh, yeah. chunk. And then I would print it. Wasn't
2: it mostly like text back then, too? Yeah. Yeah. Like, there was like no pictures or.
0: If it was a picture, it would brutal. take you hours yeah. to download. Line and they, they're line. coming so slow. Clunk, 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 clunk. I remember my friend sent me a porno film. Not even a porno film. It was a clip. It lasted like 15 seconds. It took like an hour for him to send it to me.
2: <laughs> Pictures used to take 20, 30 minutes just to load it. it was crazy.
0: Yeah. It was, no, websites were so strange. You know, you would start loading them and they would come down like, like water slowly coming down the side of a building. You know, mm. you'd see it like it was weird
2: just remembered my dad catching, like, he looked at the history and found some porn set I went on to, and I was like, I don't know, eighth grade, and it was like Pamela Anderson's first Playboy pictures, and he right. was like, I want to see what you were looking at while, uh, while I'm not here. And he went and took a shower, and the whole time it was still loading, and I was just like, oh no, what's he going to see? What's he going to see? It was just ah, that tick, tick, load, line, line, line.
0: That's hilarious. And I don't
2: 30 minutes probably later.
0: Yeah, now, I mean, you can get insane internet on your phone. That's it's crazy. really pretty impressive. I mean, and then the phones are getting weirder and weirder, too, like... Do you remember when phones first came out? The cool people had a little phone. Like I remember, had a Razer, yeah. and I was like, "Bitch, look how little my <laughs> fucking phone is! It's a little skinny ass thing. Pick it up, call people, close it. It's like a credit card. Shoves in my pocket. You were the coolest man. You yeah, had one of them little phones. You were an idiot if you had one of those big phones. Right. What are you doing with that big stupid phone? Now it's like things like this new Samsung. Yeah, is Nokia old school, yeah, son. buddy? But the really small ones were the right there, the above one. Look at that! The fuck is that thing? They tried to make a new kind of like dial, (laughs) all around it. You hold that thing up to your ear, like it's like a cell phone. Was like the size of a beeper. Yeah, those were the shit. Those little tiny ass phones. Now you got that new Galaxy Note Eight. Have you seen that monstrosity? Gigantic. It's huge. Gigantic. Whose pockets are gonna fit these things in?
1: That's a real problem. When I first got my iPhone, what was it, 6s? Was that the 6 Plus? That's was that the, the first size one that of this was big. Yeah. I was like, God damn, like it won't even fit in my pocket. So that was the first time. And I'm still, like, I use the big phone, but I, yeah. Hey, look at that <laughs> new one. That's the <laughs> S8
0: Plus. Jesus It's like, Christ, that's almost huge. A tablet. That's the S8, but the Note 8 uh, is even bigger. Look at that thing. Wow. It's got a pen. Look at the size of that thing. Like, that, that could be. Uh, a woman with small hands—it's hard to tell. Mm-hmm. I would like to see it in the hands of a basketball player. You know, if like if you got like LeBron James, like finally I got a phone I can hold in my hand. You know, because for him it's probably like King Kong, like holding little tiny people. You know, <laughs> those big giant hands. Like for a basketball player, like a some sort of a Bill Russell type character with giant hands—that's a good size mm. phone. But to small people, not so much. You just. Trying too hard. I, I never. Uh, I had a, a Galaxy Note before. I never used that pen. I, used, I was yeah, like, when styles. I first got it, I was like, this pen is going to rule. Mm. This is going to be the big difference. I'm going to send people pictures. I'm going to draw dicks on them. <laughs> I had this plan. <laughs> it's a good plan, Jeff. That was the plan. It was just <laughs> like to just make funny pictures, you know. And I never used it. I Just I got lazy. I think I just it wasn't that interesting. One thing that is interesting though is that you can circle something. And, like, uh, say if, like, there's a part of an article that you think is interesting, you could circle it and copy it and paste it really simply and easily. Really? Yeah, that's pretty good. The actual image itself, like, say if someone sends you something and there's some text in an image, you could just circle around it and, and send that to yourself and that's save it. Cool. Yeah. What do you use? iPhone? Yeah. Do iPhone. you ever fuck around with Windows? Um, I did for a while. My first computer
1: was Windows. Um, for work at one point I was having to use Windows, but, um, yeah,
0: as somebody who really appreciates good design, that didn't last long. So. Windows 10 is pretty good, Yeah, but it's not quite good enough. It's pretty goddamn good, but that's, what's always been fascinating to me is that Microsoft is the biggest company when it comes to operating systems, mm. but it's not the best, you know, and everybody kind of knows that, but it's, there's this weird sort of battle. I mean, Apple's big enough. They have plenty they make the best stuff they make the most high-end stuff in a lot of people's eyes but it's real limited like you can only get what they put out if you want a windows laptop you have a hundred options right. make more you know you want a Mac laptop, you have a few. But the interesting thing is that was Steve Jobs'
1: approach, Ooh. right, was he came in and said, you have too many options. This is stupid. You've really got to narrow this stuff down,
0: Microsoft Surface Laptops.
2: They pulled the recommendation after uh, announcing it. I guess two, two years ago recommended. they recommended it, and now it's like the first time they've pulled it in a long time.
0: Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Predicted reliability with an time, estimated yeah. two-year breakage rates of 25%. Ooh, that's not good. They got cheap.
2: Yeah, it's the, specific, the new one, the Microsoft Surface. Well, that's that,
0: like, interesting because there was another study that I saw, not a study, um, uh, you know, one of those lists that listed it as the best laptop available in 2017.
2: Is this just, like, within the last week?
0: They uh, that thing, maybe so. it's just, like, different consumer groups, but yeah. maybe the best laptop while it works.
2: <laughs> yeah, you know?
0: if, if what you have is a breakage problem. Yeah, the problem I see is that. it working. While it's working, it's the best. How long is it going to work? It's not going to work that yeah. long. But, you <laughs> know, it's it like a it sprinter. You know, they're the fastest, but they don't run the longest. Very true. Maybe think about very that one, now. I think that's fair. So what are you trying to do with this company?
1: Like- Literally pull people out of the matrix. So, what? Um, yes. Wait a minute. That is our stated mission, my friend. We are here to pull people out of the matrix. So oh, I can, out, I can walk you through it if you really want to know. Yeah. Uh, it goes like this. So um, when I st- – I'm not a born entrepreneur, so I'm very, very far from it. And three are there born entrepreneurs? Uh, there are people that will tell you that there are only born entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Those uh, people are idiots. Yeah, I would agree. with. No, they're not. There's some amazing people that say that, but I just think that they're very, very catastrophically wrong about this. Yeah, people love so, to say shit like that. To me, it's like saying you're a born mixed martial artist. Now, there mm. might be people that have certain athletic gifts that make it – they get early wins, and there's just things that click into place for them right. uh, in a way that it doesn't for other people. But if you get a grinder, somebody that's really willing to put in the work, then you can get somebody – who becomes absolutely extraordinary. So that certainly has been my life. So I grew up being taught to be a good employee, keep my head down, do as little work as possible and avoid punishment at all costs. That was my life. That's what my parents taught me to be a good employee. And I, obviously that didn't sit well with me. I wanted to do something more. I had a pretty big ambition. Uh, I go to film school and I do very well in film school until my final film. And then I fall flat on my face, embarrass myself and realize I'm not a talented filmmaker. And in that— What made you notice that you weren't, and why did you think you couldn't get better? So, great question. So, when I started film school, I believed that you either were talented or you weren't, right? There's just some things. You either can sing or you can't. You either can draw or you can't. Uh, When it comes to art, which I saw film as art, you're either good or you're not. And so that was how I thought of it. Now, I thought you could get better at the technical side, so I was going to film school to learn the technical aspects, but I was banking on the fact that I was— Inherently talented. So I go and my first year and a half went very well. And I was crushing it, certainly by my own estimation, doing very well, getting the attention of my classmates. And then only four people out of the entire school for your year get to make a senior thesis film. And I was chosen as one of the four. So it was like, yeah, man, I just I have it. And there were two filmmakers that were really big for me. One was John Wu. Do you remember John Woo? Sure. He was Action red movies. hot. Great yeah, movies. like the 80s and 90s. Just yeah, smoking pow, hot. Pow, pow, pow. Yeah. A lot of shoot 'em ups. A lot. And I loved him. And he was famous for, it. he would roll up on set. He wouldn't think about it ahead of time. He just put the camera wherever it felt right. And his movies were mind-blowing. People always referred to it as his violence is like a ballet. It's that Mm. well orchestrated, that beautiful, that interesting. And so I thought, okay, well, if I'm naturally talented, then I should be like that. And then there was Hitchcock, who was sort of the plotter. Um, He would spend all of his time, like, pre-planning the film. Every shot was so orchestrated. Ahead of time, he said, I get bored on set. And I thought, God, man, like, he he doesn't sound like natural talent to me. So I'm over here. I want to be John Woo. I show up on set. Acting like I'm John Woo, I don't pre-plan anything. I put the camera where it feels right, and just publicly embarrass myself as I turn this film into a piece of shit. And at that point, I thought I was, you know, about to graduate, get the three-picture deal, everything is going to be set. This is going to be amazing. And there I am, crash and burn. Now the other students are circling me like vultures because, I mean, that's the film industry, man. Like, it it is a zero-sum game, or at least it was back then. That's how people saw it. Because it wasn't like today where you could edit on your fucking – I mean, he's editing, like, right now. Like, that didn't exist. So it was – you had to get access to real resources. Mm -hmm. So when I realized, oh, my God, I don't have a thesis project to show people to get an agent or whatever, it's done. I'm not a talented filmmaker. And so I was so desperate in that. I needed something that would free me from feeling like a permanent failure. And that thing that I had was the notion of Alfred Hitchcock. And even though it wasn't sexy, it gave me a window into maybe there's another way. Maybe there is another way that somebody can be an artist and and they just have to learn it. Like think about if somebody draws, right? Some people can rotate an object in their mind if you've seen on mm-hmm. IQ tests they make you do that. I can't do that. I literally can't rotate an object in my mind. I don't even understand people that can do it. Hmm. So... I thought, well, maybe you could become a great artist just by memorizing every conceivable pose, like a chess player. The great chess grandmasters are the ones that have memorized so many different moves and combinations that it become somewhat intuitive for them. So I thought, okay, that's gonna have to be my path. It gave me an escape route. And then going down that path of saying, I just have to learn this stuff. I'm not naturally talented, but I have to learn. Unfortunately, Carol Dweck had not written her book Mindset at that point. So it, I didn't have the words, growth mindset, fixed mindset, but I began to transition out. So a fixed mindset is what I had, which you believe your talent and intelligence are fixed traits, they can't be changed. Somebody with a growth mindset realizes that your talent and intelligence are malleable, that you can develop them through discipline practice. So I began to adopt sort of the beginnings of that mindset realizing that I'm just a grinder. I have to work and I have to get better. So I start teaching film school and in teaching film school, the best way to learn something is to teach it. So now I'm getting better as a filmmaker just by teaching it to these guys, helping them develop their scripts, helping them shoot their films, and then And um, at that time, these two very successful entrepreneurs came into my class, and there were two things. As a kid, I promised myself, growing up in a morbidly obese family, that one day I would be rich, and one day I would have six-pack abs. And so here were these. They were yoked. These two yoked bodybuilder guys that were successful entrepreneurs, and they said, "Why don't you come work for us and be a copywriter?" And it's a startup company; you can have any role in, in the company you want, but you just have to become the right person for that job, and then you can get rich and you can go back and control the art. You can make movies your way. So I was like, "Oh my god! Like this is too good to be true. I have to go do this." So I joined them as a copywriter as they were starting this fledgling technology company, and. Um just to keep this from getting impossibly long. For about eight and a half years I just chased money. I was just trying to get rich to go back and make movies my way. Right. But in that they were very growth minded. I began to really develop a growth mindset to believe that I could do anything I set my mind to without limitation. I just had to understand that there was a gap in skill set between where I was and where I wanted to get, and I had to be willing to put in the work to get that skill, right? So um I trained exactly one time with a man I you must know him, us, the Hobby. Sure. All right, so for us, by the way, I feel a moral obligation to help him become famous because he is one of the most intriguing minds I've ever come across in my life.
0: Yeah, we were supposed to do a podcast last year. was a UFC in Anaheim, but his fighter got canceled. The, the fight got canceled, and so he uh, wanted him not coming on. I'm a big fan of his, though, That as a that person. Is heartbreaking. As he, a fighter, uh, trainer, as well as a mixed martial artist. Very talented guy.
1: Very. And in getting to roll with him... In my single moment as a grappler, uh, it was... Did you um, ever grapple before? No, never. So you just rolled with him
0: the first time? But he's a black belt.
1: Yeah, but and that's why it was the best thing ever. So he knew how to not let me get injured. He knew right. how to move in just the right way, how to show me things. Mm-hmm. He's so kind and compassionate and patient i can't imagine like a better intro to grappling it was unbelievable and what it showed me that even just in like the hour that he and i grappled i went from dude i I i'm so lost even spatially i can't tell where i am like Mm -hmm. once you start moving me i just get lost and then an hour later i could he gave me like these two basic moves to learn how to execute and by the end i could do it and it was like the exact reminder of what a growth mindset is and how even something that foreign to me with a good teacher practice you can get good i mean look it's going to take years and years and years to become even competent in jiu-jitsu let alone be able to participate at a high level but it was a great micro reminder of just how powerfully humans can learn now here's my theory about humans and learning and why I, and just i guess to wrap up my entrepreneurial journey so um, decide I, I don't want to chase money anymore, not going to do that. So I go into my partners and I say, look, I quit. This is about eight and a half. Uh, actually, I quit at about the six-year mark and ended up actually getting out at about eight and a half years. So six years, I say, I quit. I can't do this anymore. I'm living the cliche of money can't buy happiness. This is absolutely ridiculous. Um, so here's your equity back. If I don't cross the finish
0: line, I shouldn't get anything for this. What? So you, didn't, you weren't obligated to give that money back? You yeah. decided to? Correct. Wow.
1: So, sounds like a movie. But that, to me, is is the right old thing yeller. to do. Every, old yeller. Do I get shot at the end of this? <laughs>
0: I don't know. It sounds uh, like so romanticized. Uh, yeah.
1: So I think everybody should live by a code, right? Just okay. It's, it's what's right for you. and. So I have a code, very strong code that I live by. That was one of the things like I'm the one quitting. Like these guys have done nothing but create opportunity for me. So I'm quitting. I'm not going to cross the finish line because I, I feel literally dead inside. I can't keep doing this. Doesn't make sense. I realize the game you're playing is not money. I promise. It's not success. It's brain chemistry so once you understand the game you're playing is brain chemistry and that if you have 7.4 billion dollars and hate your life and want to commit suicide what the fuck good is the money and conversely if you have no money but you feel a deep sense of fulfillment self-pride and believe in what you're doing like what do you care that you don't have money right better brain chemistry Yeah. Better brain chemistry. So, so what'd you do? So they said, look, we could do this without you. They were totally caught off guard. They said, we could do this without you, but we don't want to. So let's talk about what would it look like for us to work together. And so by this point, like we've got a deep friendship, you know, I'm not like the new kid on the block anymore. Um, and I said, okay, if we're going to work together, it's got to be something entirely predicated on value, not money. I need to be honest. My highest priority in business is not profitability. It's camaraderie. So that's why when they said we could do this without you, but we don't want to, that was the thing that let me reconnect to the brotherhood that had made it interesting for me in the early days. And so that felt amazing. And so I was like, I'll come back if it's all about value. If we're doing something we're passionate about, and if we're asking and answering the question, what would we do every day and love even if we were failing because the struggle is guaranteed that's hard to get a bunch of
0: people in a business to agree to that though isn't it
1: Uh, well it wasn't for me because they were already there so Mm -hmm. they were like it's crazy we felt the same way for a very long time because we like we We, and by we, they were so much farther ahead than me at this point. So they really, and gave me the opportunity to learn, had really built that tech company up. Like We got, I think, a valuation of 22 million, if I'm not mistaken, at one point, and we just couldn't get it passed. And so it was like, we'd been struggling for years to move the needle more, and we just couldn't. So it wasn't like, oh, I come in and give some amazing Jerry Maguire speech, and they're all like, all right, fuck it, us too. It was like, finally, somebody just said what everybody was already thinking. Mm -hmm. So they said, all right, let's give us a timeline. six months if we hit these revenue numbers in six months we'll keep going but if we miss them we'll sell so we didn't hit them and so we began the sales process and all in it was about eight and a half years by the time that was finally sold and the thing for three very different reasons that we decided to found that was going to be predicated around delivering value to our employees and our customers that was going to be that thing that we would love doing every day even if we were failing that allowed me to connect emotionally because um, it ended up being quest nutrition I grew up in a morbidly obese family and I wanted to save my my mom and my sister. And it would it gave me this um Mother Teresa has a great quote. She says, "Nobody will act for the many, but people will act for the one." So, finally, I could just think about two people that I knew and loved and I wanted to do something awesome for them. So, when I got tired, when I was fatigued, rather than thinking about money and a big house and a fast car, I was thinking about fucking saving my mom and my sister. And our idea was if we could make food that people could choose based on taste and it happened to be good for them, we could actually end metabolic disease. So that was like the driving force and we were fucking excited about it. And we didn't know if it would be a real business. We didn't know, like every time we'd explain it to people, we're putting value first. And we thought, God, do we sound like total assholes? But it was like, we really believed in it. And so it gave us insights into social media. This back in 2009 when nobody was really using it for business. And we could see that it's just a megaphone. So if you actually do deliver that kind of value for people, they're gonna talk. And now they had the ability to talk to a global audience within minutes of an interaction with your company. So if you were really taking care of them, you really delivered a product that was real, and you were building community, 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 then you could really do something. And so that's how it took off. But it really did, I used to joke and say, Quest is a company born out of misery. Because it was, it was three guys slogging it out Not really even liking the product that we made. It just served a need in the marketplace. Um, Security software. We didn't care about it. We didn't use it in our own company. So it was like, oh, God. So getting into something. We were obsessively talking about nutrition anyway. I've lost 60 pounds and kept it off. Uh, I went through a pencil head phase. I've added muscle. Like learning about diet to escape the fate of my family has been so important to me. But that was all back at a technology company. So we were now leveraged. And one of my partners is a fucking nutritional genius. This dude is Unreal. So leveraging what we were doing and thinking about already just was insanely powerful for us as a, a business opportunity. And we ended up making more in a single day at Quest than we made annually at the tech company.
0: Dude, you went from telling me about being a failed movie maker in college to the full journey of Quest Nutrition. Yeah. I
1: don't know if that's good or bad, but there it is.
0: Yeah, it's, um, it's a crazy journey, man. It's weird that you um, didn't want to go back to filmmaking, though. Like, You you've realized you fucked up and why you fucked up. Well, so here we all come full circle. So, so this part is of, what your new country, company yeah. is. So, so your new company is about making – you want to make films? Like, what do you want to traditional make?
1: Traditional narrative content, yeah. So yeah. comic books, books, movies, TV shows. Now, have you fucked
0: – don't you think that it's one of those things that like when you were in film school and when you're like trying to come up with a thesis film that – this was like a step in a very long journey of figuring out how to make films and that when you left it, you got to kind of, you're going right back to where you were or has life experience. Given you more tools to work with and you could sort of apply those to the idea of creative filmmaking. Yeah, exactly that.
1: So what I'm not trying to do is go back and be a director. What I want to do now is build the studio. So, um, becoming an entrepreneur and training myself in that way has created an obsession with scale for me. So the thought of myopically making one movie is absolutely terrifying. Like just the amount of time it would take and your ability to push multiple things forward uh, essentially grinds to a So home. you
0: want to sort of finance other people's ideas and projects? That'll be part of it. be a part of it. That'll be part of it. Bringing a team together that can execute at, at scale
1: and create um, uh, a lot of content. And in the beginning, we're going to have to partner with people. We just don't have enough finances. Like, we have enough to you know, build the infrastructure and get the creative together, but we're not going to be, you know, financing a hundred plus million dollar film every year. So, um, we'll need to partner with people, but that's essentially what I've spent the last 15 years learning how to do is the business side of things. Um, how to build teams, how to get them pointed in the right direction, how to think through, okay, you've got this grand goal. You want to make a studio bigger than Disney, but like, what are the real, like, what are the things you can do today to actually take a step towards that?
0: So as you're like, Desire to do things changed. Like your your desire is not to create a film anymore. Your desire is now to create business. Your your desire is to create. In Some sort of a large organization. Yeah, sort of. So in in reality, my real desire
1: is I want to pull people out of the matrix. So that's, yeah, well, that's that what is, you said
0: before. That's I was trying to work my way back to. Like, so that's so? the most
1: sincere thing. So the matrix to me is a set of limiting beliefs that the vast majority of people have that stop them from achieving what they could achieve in life if they only understood that humans are the ultimate adaptation machine and that... We are the only animal you can put into any environment, and we will be able to survive and thrive. So we can do that. Through. Sort of. Give me an example where we. You don't think well, we, can. we
0: don't. We don't survive and thrive in horrifying climates. Like you, you bring people to Antarctica, they survive. Ooh. They certainly don't thrive. Look and at, get look at out indigenous of people, right? So sure. they do, and you can. We can go in and build
1: a research facility. So some of the adaptation is. What do you mean? You say, there's
0: no indigenous people living in Antarctica. Like, what do you mean indigenous Sorry, people?
1: Sorry, like- Arctic Circle is what okay. I was thinking. I apologize. So... Um, there's two kinds of adaptations. So you know that woman that swam the Bering Strait? Mm -hmm. Okay, so she sleeps uh, with her windows open in a cold climate. I forget where she lived. Um, Basically what she's doing by constant cold exposure is um, changing her adipose tissue to brown fat. So now it's more thermogenic and she can actually do something that she wasn't able to do. And if you're really going to let me get crazy, like looking at what Wim Hof has done with his ability to regulate internal temperature is, is pretty crazy. And then just what they're discovering with DNA from, at one point it was considered to be just junk DNA. And now they're realizing that's actually epigenetic responders, essentially. So are there limits? Yeah, probably. But just as like, looking at the way that we only have what 20,000 genes, and an onion has like 40,000 genes. So what is it that makes us more complex, if you will give me that we are complex. Um, and it seems to be the, what they originally thought was junk DNA, which is your genes will turn on or off, express themselves in different amounts based on your environment and your diet and um, even some just like how you're thinking, your microbiome, like all that stuff then regulates how your genes are expressed. And we have a much wider ability to adapt to climates. Um, if you're not gonna let me go as extreme, but we have the widest ability. Would you agree to that? Sure. Okay, so of all the species, we have the widest flexibility. Um, so it's that ability to adapt that I think is, is one of our greatest strengths. I don't remember why I started down my path of adaptation, um, but the fact that humans can adapt in whatever direction they want, I began adapting myself um, through mindset and that really showed me how far I was able to come mentally from where I started. So as I saw what a huge impact it had on my life, both emotionally and financially, um, becoming a, somebody who's entrepreneurial minded, taking extreme ownership for my life, um, assuming that everything is my fault, that I can always do something, I can change something, I can get a different result, I can learn a new skill, whatever the, the case may be, but that I can cr- turn myself into what I need to be in order to execute at anything. So that changed me so much. And then I've worked in the inner city so much and seen what happens when somebody really has limiting beliefs and how much that holds them back. Um, so I big brothered for a kid in college, ended up turning into like an eight-year relationship um, and so I saw him go through a lot and I remember, so he grew up in, in first South Central and then moved to Compton and I remember taking him to see movies in Beverly Hills just because I wanted him to see beauty. Like, th- the way in which his worldview had been constructed was so bizarre and limiting. Um, there's that song by... Oh, God, I'm going to forget his name. But he says, they don't want to see you win. Kodak Black? Kodak Black.
0: I have no idea who that is. All right.
1: So anyway, it's a song by a guy named Kodak Black. And he talks about how they don't want to see you winning. And that was his mentality. Like, nobody Mm. wants to see me get out of the ghetto, right? right? Not my own mother. Nobody. So that was his frame of reference. Was just, yeah, well, it just wasn't meant for me because of where I grew up encountered those kids I was telling you about uh, dad shot to death sister shot to death like just crazy life and their perspective was very very limited they had no sense of how they're going to make something come true so I want to help people develop an empowering mindset Disney understood something which is why I use them as our foil which is every piece of content that they make feeds into a brand ethos so if I say I'm going to go see a Sony movie or a Warner Brothers movie or a Paramount movie you you know nothing about it but if I say I'm going to go see a Disney movie you already know something so we have to have the discipline to make sure that everything that we're creating feeds into that and what would that
0: thing you're feeding into be like escaping the matrix so everything you're going to do is going to be motivational in some sort of a way or informational it's got to be inspiring it's got to be
1: entertainment first and foremost but i'll give you examples of movies i wish we had created wholesale um, I wish Impact Theory had made The Matrix. It's the perfect movie, in my opinion. I wish we'd made Star Wars. The whole religion of the Jedi is wildly empowering. And I think do you know how ridiculous
0: stuff. it is to say that you wish you made the two greatest movies of all time? Yeah, of yeah, course just, you
1: do. Right?
0: But I'm saying from <laughs> I an idea of Avatar. Wow. <laughs> actually, I
1: don't wish we'd made Avatar. Why? So, um, I, Honestly, I haven't looked at it closely enough to know if it falls into that, but I don't remember it having... It, that's more of like a, a nature theme and taking care of the mm-hmm. Earth theme,
0: whereas I'm looking for empowerment themes. So, yeah. Empowerment themes and what what like in terms of fiction, all of it's going to be documentaries. Like what are you going to try to do? So, mostly uh as of right now entirely
1: fiction. Um and the idea behind that is the way that humans assimilate truly disruptive information is through narrative. And if you've read Joseph Campbell's The Power of Myth, he talks a lot about that and the hero's journey and so wanting to leverage that and, and it's not an accident that I was so impacted by the power of myth and then Joseph Campbell is the one that worked with George Lucas on creating Star Wars, making sure that real hardcore mythology is at the core of it. Um, So I just think that's how we build our belief system. It's how we build our ideology. It's how we pass it on to other people. Um, And I'm a big believer, don't try to change behavior, try to leverage it. So people are already reading books, reading comic books, so on and so forth.
0: It's a weird uh, motivation to not just make things that are entertaining. Let them make things that are entertaining that you think are going to be inspiring. But then to use Star Wars and The Matrix as examples, like, do you think those movies really pulled people out of anything or just entertained people? Because I'd be much more inclined to think the latter. Sure. So here's how I look at it. I'm a filtering mechanism.
1: I can't save everybody. Not everybody cares. So some people are going to respond. Some are The Matrix changed my life in a deep and fundamental way. So I know. The Matrix did? Yeah, 100%. How? So at the time when I had the fixed mindset, um, literally right out of college, I'm in the depths of I'm not a talented filmmaker. And now what the hell do I do? Right. Um, I went to a comic con uh, literally across the street from USC and they were um, handing out tickets to go see The Matrix at Warner Brothers Studios and uh, was very excited. Took the ticket, went that night, went in. Do you remember the movie well? Oh, absolutely. Alright, so when uh, Agent Smith goes, no officer, your men are already dead. And then they cut to up there, Trinity jumps, camera goes slow motion and spins around her. The entire audience, myself included, yelled. Because it was just unlike anything we'd ever seen in a movie. It was such a rad experience. And so that primed me for what ends up being the perfect metaphor for limiting beliefs and um you know michael strahan mm-hmm. all right so michael strahan um said the same thing he was like uh, the year that he got the award for most sacks in a single season was was because of the matrix what? so literally his own words he came on um, impact theory interviewed him asked him that question he said without a doubt that movie is the reason that i got the record because he said Up until that moment, I see Morpheus and Neo training and Morpheus says, do you really think that um, I'm faster than you because of my muscles? You really think this is air you're breathing? And Strahan realized, holy shit, I have a belief that I can only get one sack per game but why can't I get two? Why can't I get three? And he said, because of that, he would get a sack and then go, no, I can get another one. And he said, I realized in that moment that once I got a sack in a game, I would back off because I just believed that was like the most anyone could do in a game. So, and it had a similar impact on me. It made me realize I needed to figure out what my, what is the matrix, right? Cause I don't actually think we're in a simulation. So what is the matrix belief system? What is my version of jacking in reading? What is my Kung Fu? business like those were all the things that began to sack it wasn't there while i'm sitting in the movie theater but those were the things that it were in my mind and i just kept thinking about it thinking about it thinking about it and i think in movies so when i give examples a lot of times i give examples from movies because they have that impact. Now, the reason that I don't think something like this would work and the reason that I think so many people have not responded the way that I've responded is nobody is allowing people to take it seriously. So social media, I think, is going to change that. So nobody's allowing people to take it seriously. Yeah, Everybody brushes it off. It's just entertainment. So What, what what do you mean by that? So Joseph Campbell in The Power of Myth talked about he was asked by Bill Moyer Bill Moyer said, I've
0: I've seen it, read it. Okay. So
1: when he goes, what do you think happens to a world where people no longer believe in mythology? And Joseph Campbell said, you're living through it right now. And the point being that you have all the mythology in the world, but nobody believes in it anymore. Everybody knows Star Wars isn't real. Everybody knows the Matrix isn't real. But people actually used to believe that religion was real. And so you had this mythological tale, whether it was, you know, Zeus or whether it was Cassandra, all the Greek mythology, mm-hmm. whether it was Jesus Christ, didn't matter. People believed it. They thought it was real. and A lot so of people still do. Correct. But I would say that that's diminishing day over day. Um,
0: it's gotten less. Will you give me that um, from? I'm sure ancient times. I mean, I don't know what the current state of atheism, agnosticism, and deity worship is. It's. I, I would imagine it's probably somewhere in the fifty percent range, though. I,
1: I I won't even challenge that. I will give you my gut instinct. My gut instinct is, while people are still deeply religious, they don't believe in the
0: literal word as much. Well, let's um, let's Google like. What percentage of people today consider themselves religious versus the past? Let's see if we get anything there. And then, this. if we get anything there, we have to I figure out. I think people still it. cling to it because it's, uh, it's comforting and because the uncertainty of existence and the finite nature of our life it's, uh, it's very disturbing. That open ended feeling of not knowing when it's going to happen or what's going to happen and having some sort of a calm and peaceful belief in uh, an overlord. Like someone who's paying attention to this whole thing and has got a plan. I'll I mean, agree to that. My thesis isn't that people don't believe in something. It's that they don't
1: believe in the literal word as much. Yeah. That's well, much. yeah. How about this? It didn't help me. So there are some people out there like Here's me. numbers right here.
0: What do we got here, Jamie?
2: Unaffiliated rose from two thousand seven, two thousand fourteen by six point seven percent.
0: From two thousand fourteen, from two thousand seven to, to oh, 14. so, so what is in, that in mean? seven years yeah. it rose by 6%, six percent. But they 6. still 7%. identify Christian unaffiliated. Unaffili- yeah, nothing. There was yeah. any religion, so they're what spiritual uh-huh.
2: Christians went from seventy eight to seventy. In what the same time period?
0: Seventy eight percent. Wow.
2: I think it's the American population. The
0: American population of Christians is 78% to 70, whatever it is. So it dropped 8%, but still a giant number of people. That's why you have to say you're a believer in God in order to be president. They still maintain that that's like a a necessary thing. Like if you are a person running for president that says, I don't know, you know, I have no idea, and I'm personally inclined to believe that maybe – uh, maybe there's no God. Mm. Like people would go fucking crazy. You would never get to be president. We have this fundamental desire, even if there's zero proof, and there absolutely is zero proof. Especially when you think about the stories in the Bible and some of the more preposterous ones. Um, there's no proof that any of those ever really took place. There's no, uh, I mean, it's there's no pr- proof that what was the guy that called called the she bear to kill the children that were mocking him for being bald? You know, there was a. I have no idea. You don't know that story? No. There was a guy in the Bible. That, uh, these kids were giving him a hard time for being bald. So, uh, he, he called upon God to avenge him and God sent a bear to kill the children that oh. were mocking him. Yeah. That's intense. Guess what? Elisha. Uh, yeah. Elisha? How do you say that? Elisha? Elisha? Elisha. 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 Yeah. yeah. He went that. up to Bethel. Uh, as he walked along the road, some boys came from the city and mocked him. And, uh, when, uh... They mocked him. God sent a bear, and the bear fucking <laughs> killed the kids. Wow. Yeah, there's there are Yeah, some crazy I'm guessing stories. that didn't happen, kids. I'm guessing that uh, God's not such a piece of shit that he has sends a bear to kill little children. How about the kids? Just they were talking shit about this guy being bald. They didn't notice a bear was sneaking up on him. More likely, you know, when you're talking a bunch of shit, you make noise. The bears realize, oh, these are high pitched noises. Probably delicious little kids, and then they moved in. But still, seventy percent, man. So it's less people believe, but still, oh, that's a giant number. It is. It is a giant number. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, that's a good question. Like, how many of them actually believe? You know, and what to what to what extent? Right. And what is it they actually believe? Yeah. So something,
1: uh, my thesis is this, something's wrong. Uh, this isn't a, an anti religion thing for me. I, I have no beef with religion. If it's making people positive and connecting and doing mm-hmm. something great, I'm all for it. Um, I am not a religious person. Um, and so maybe I needed this for me to have something that could give me the ideology that I needed. The uh, reading the power of myth really changed my life. I read it and he talks about in the book how, um, basically one of the things he thinks is going wrong with divorce and the reason that divorce rates are so high is that ritual has really lost its impact and you don't have these demarcation points between childhood and adulthood or between being single and being married and Mm -hmm. he was like you know back in the day when you were 13 they took you out into the woods they literally ripped you from the clutches of the women took you out and with no anesthetic they would circumcise you and now you know like you're a man so because there's none of that you get arrested adolescence and there's sort of a weakening of the, um, the, the import of the religious ceremony as far as divorce goes. And so people aren't taking that as seriously. So, and he talks about ritualistic scarification and how, man, you knew something had changed when people put your body through some kind of transformation. So when I got married, I went through a ritualistic scarification to remind myself that I was a different man the day before. What
0: kind of ritualistic scarification did you go through? A tattoo. Oh, so that's I, a grandiose way. Right? But here, this is... How dare, dare, is, <laughs> you.
1: How dare that, you call that a how,
0: ritualistic scarification?
1: That's how I saw it. So I don't, I don't oh. do tattoos. You'll see I, nothing. I have one tattoo, which I did specifically for my wedding. I've never gotten mm. another one. Um, and at the time, this isn't the case anymore, but at the time, one of my biggest sort of realistic fears was needles. So it was me saying to my wife, I'm going to go scar my body um, using needles, which freak me the fuck out. Um, to remind myself a I want it to be painful, and then b I want it to be permanent, and i 'm glad that it 's something that I have this active fear of, so in doing all of that, it really did make the whole wedding just a bigger deal to me, and so
0: that 's very interesting, but I think when we 're talking about Joseph Campbell and the the issues uh, th- that I think are very real about people not experiencing like a grand event or at least some sort of a ritual that gets them to adulthood um I think There's a a significant issue that we have with just things being far too easy and that there's no real difficult path where the warrior has to find themselves in, you know, in myth or in in a person's actual life that they they have to overcome some very difficult thing. Now, for you, I'm sure uh, some of those, I mean, we all have difficulties in life, but some of the difficulties that you experienced when you were in film school was like this creation of this thing, you know, but once you tried to create this thing and it didn't work out right. Do you, don't you have this, like, desire to go back and try to figure it out, right? Like, don't you have this desire, like, okay, like, I see where I fucked this up. I try to be like John Woo instead of trying to be like Alfred Hitchcock, and I see that there's, like, a, a way you could be systematic. You're obviously a systematic thinker. Like, you're talking about, you're you're a quote organizer. You have all these quotes in your mind, and you have all these systems that you follow, including, like, following, like, some of Gary Vee's social media stuff, right? It's like you're a system. You follow, like, these are ways to engage in success, Right. So, I would feel like that would like haunt you a little bit. It's interesting.
1: Um, it doesn't. So since then, I have done. I have done a low budget feature film. Oh, okay. Um, I wrote a screenplay that was um, turned into a feature film. That was a horrifying experience. What was that? Uh, just because it didn't turn out the way that I wanted it to, it wasn't um, executed as written. I mean, look, this is the age right. old writer's complaint, right? Yeah. So, um, but I've I have changed as a person over time to where i'm just now way more interested in scale so i still have that love for cinema i love storytelling i think story is a it is a way that we assimilate information like that is when i think about um the things that have painted a vision for me of what is a man came Mm -hmm. way more from movies than say my own father so and that that is not to downplay like having a relationship with somebody that you're in proximity with is is ultimately, I think, going to be the most powerful thing. It's just not scalable. So looking at how impactful media has been for me and for a lot of people, um, and this whole notion of self signaling, because at the end of the day, the way that I see the company is we're a merchandise company. So You create the intellectual property. I mean, this is uh, out of Disney's playbook. You create the intellectual property in order to create the merchandise. And it's the merchandise that drives a lot of the revenue, not all of it, but it drives a lot of the revenue. And in having that, you also create this thing called self signaling. So as I dress a certain way to tell you something, which is how it starts, it also tells me even more loudly than you. So as I like, I have a Batman shirt, and I have a Superman shirt. And when I wear those shirts, it reminds me of my tie to that ethos, right? So Batman is, you don't have any superpowers, motherfucker, you just have to work really, really hard. And you've got to be prepared to tap into the dark side to keep pushing hard enough to, you know, avenge what you believe is your failing. So Superman, uh, it's a perfect analogy for passion, right? He's a normal guy, except when he's in the yellow sun. And that gave me a way to think about getting in line with my passion i remember i was obsessed with that when i decided to go in and quit i was like i'm like superman and i am out of the yellow sun because i'm not passionate about anything and the only time that i can do things that make me feel that that are extraordinary are when i'm really passionate the matrix obviously is like the core metaphor for my entire existence so that is such a crazy thing to say yeah for sure it's a weird thing the matrix is the core wow okay the core metaphor, yeah, right? I, I recognize it. it's a yeah. metaphor, right. um, but it's, it's a core metaphor. And not to beat Joseph Campbell to death, didn't expect him to come out of my mouth this many times in this interview, but he said, if you want to change the world, you have to change the metaphor. So, and people have talked a lot about that with the, how the world changed from the metaphor of the steam engine to the metaphor mm-hmm. of the computer, uh, and that just it changed the way that you thought about workers. It changed the way you thought about intelligence, and just changed a lot of things just by shifting from one metaphor to the next um, so dealing in the realm of metaphor, giving people access points to different things through. Storytelling, which obviously is writing on the back of metaphor, um, I think is is an incredible access point. But more importantly, it's something people already do. So you're leveraging behavior that's already there, and that was like a necessary part. The same thing with Quest, right? Don't ask people to eat less and exercise more. We've been telling them that for sixty years. Whatever it works for a narrow band of the population, but it doesn't work for everybody. Um, so finding something that people are already doing, people are already Watching movies, TV shows, playing video games, reading books, comic books are already doing it. They're billions and billions of dollar industries. Um, so being able to tap into that, leverage social media now. So this is where we first got onto this part where I was saying you're in a position where most people don't take it seriously. They don't try to extract the life lessons. They're not Michael Strahan. They don't. Ha- see a movie one well, most time people and just it
0: enjoy them. it they just go to see a film to be entertained correct this is a fascinating approach though to, to create films to change the way human beings think about life but now keep in mind if we don't entertain first and foremost we've got nothing right so
1: people need to be able to watch the movies and have no idea that there's a message disney is a perfect example of that disney is trying to tell you that right should always win bad Right, should but they make lose. movies
0: for children sure i mean it's it's a different thing like organizing something like that to a grand scale to make films for humans that you think can pull them out of the matrix through do you think this, this
1: works for kids but only kids
0: I don't think kids are a little bit more pliable and they don't have enough information. And Sometimes you can show them, show them some things through, you know, cartoons and things along those lines so that it could set in with them a little mm. bit easier and better. I mean, it's absolutely possible to send a message through a film that really radiates with people, resonates with people. Because I have a deep and abiding fear that this is only going to work with kids. Really? Yeah. I don't know
1: that that's true, but there's a guy. Do you know Jeffrey Canada? No. Super cool dude. Um... Grows up in Harlem and realizes, dude, the school system is fucked. Like, everyone has just given up on all of us here in Harlem. But he's super bright. Ends up going to Harvard and says, I'm going to become a doctor. I'm going to go back and change the education system. And does that, goes back, and spends I don't know how many years in the education system and just realizes, yeah, this is never going to work. You can't change it from the inside. There are so many politics. There's so much entrenched bullshit. Like, this is going nowhere. So he leaves and decides that he's going to... Um, give up on adults and he's going to start with kids. In fact, not even that. He's going to try to find women who are about to become pregnant and all he wants to do is, because he looked at what makes a middle-class kid successful versus an inner-city kid who goes on to not be successful? What's the difference? And what he found was it's the number of words that a child hears before the age of five, I think it is, and the ratio of positive to negative. He said, your average kid in the middle class hears five million words before the time that he's five, 70% are positive, 30% are negative. Whereas in the inner city, a kid hears like two or three million by the time that they're five and the the ratio is reversed. So it's 30% positive, 70% negative. So he said, that's, I'm just going to make my life's mission solving that problem. So that's a crazy issue. That's a
0: gigantic issue.
1: Massive. And he said, what happens is the language centers in the brain just don't develop properly. And because of that, they struggle later in life trying to get a job because they can't communicate as well. Um, so he felt like he had just put his finger on sort of that baseline. But the reason I bring Jeffrey Canada up is because he gave up on adults. So as I'm thinking through this, look, we haven't executed on this. Nobody should be taking me seriously right now. I know that. So I've got like this, and and I'm ve- like everybody told us we were crazy when we said we're launching a protein bar. People are like, motherfucker, are you stupid? The 1,600 protein bars in 2009. It is the most crowded space. Ever, One guy actually told us, I need another protein bar like I need another hole in the head. And then, five years later, we're Inc. 500, second fastest growing company in North America, grew by 57,000%. How? Because we believe that it could be done, right? So, I get it. People well, think I'm crazy. because you made a
0: good product also, and right? people were enjoying it, and that's what they wanted. And that's kind of the same thing with making films. Like, you have to make a good product that people are going to enjoy. But it's a fascinating thing that you're coming to it saying... That you want to change people and take them out of the matrix, but you're also saying that you're you're like a memorabilia company or a a, I a mean, merchandise merchandise company. company? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the same thing, right? It's like you're 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 talking like objects that go along with your films, and that's a Correct. big part of what. So you're planning all this out from a financial standpoint, right? But what about a creative standpoint, like to, to be able to put together. All these ideas like to say, oh, I want to make the new Matrix. Oh, I want to make the new Star Wars. And I want to change the world. I want to drag people out of this mundane reality they live in and show them the power of myth. Right.
1: Yeah. More, I want to show them the power of belief. I don't think they're ever going to see the power of myth. Why wouldn't Um, they see it if you could see it? uh, Maybe they will. I don't know. Just not a focus for me. I just want them to take the usable mindset and apply it. Mm. And I think that we live in an interesting time now where social media can comment on... The things and say, here's what's extractable from this. So
0: will you try to adjust films accordingly? Like if someone comes to you with an idea and a script and they want this project to be created, you try to adjust it accordingly to try to have the highest amount of impact and... Like, how are you going to do that? Yeah, so hopefully
1: we'll be a beacon to people that really understand the mindset. So um, we laid out a, a three-phase approach to building the studio on the website literally from day one, uh, and phase one is build the community. So we're building a community around ideology, people that come and listen. In fact, this is how you and I connected. So one of my um, one of the people that follows my show wrote to you and said, Joe, you really got to get this guy on your show and sent you a clip. And you said, hey, this is actually pretty interesting. You should come on. Um, so... That's all around ideology, right? So I've spent the last 20 plus years of my life constructing my mindset to allow me to be successful. And because I've had a certain level of success, people take me seriously. So now what I'm trying to do is just find the most efficacious way to actually get that ideology in people's hands. And I know if I can incept them in entertainment, I've got a shot.
0: Hmm. But
1: if I can't entertain them first, I've got nothing. So what if a we a fascinating
0: way to sneak it in.
1: If we don't have good movies, like, I mean, I think this is where you were going. If if the movies aren't just good... In and of themselves, yeah. like, we're fucked. We've got nothing. Yeah. So we have to get really good at making really good movies that people want to see for their own sake. So that and that's a Herculean task, no question. And we're going to have to assemble an amazing creative team that really understands at a very deep level the ideology of the company.
0: Well, in and of itself, making entertaining films, like having a company that makes entertaining films is difficult. Brutal. Make entertaining films that have this sort of life-changing message. I don't envy you. It sounds like a long task, but Hey, look, it can be done if Disney did it. And arguably they certainly did with kids, you know, I mean, they've, they've made some really powerful movies with Mm -hmm. some really good messages.
1: No question. No
0: question. And look,
1: it's going to be a bumpy road. I know that there's going to be Well, there's guaranteed failure and hopefully success. Um, but it's something that I believe in enough to fight for it, so when you talk about you know um i don't don't you want to go back and sort of make good on the the
0: filmmaking promise um no not not that's not not what I meant I, what I meant was not there's no promise. I just meant, is it something that you think like hmm, maybe I could have adjusted, maybe I could have done this, 100%. maybe I could have built on my skill set, maybe I could have continued making films and tried different approaches, and I feel like. You know, if you had a real passion for, it, and it was something that you were so interested in, and you said you were killing it early on in your film mm-hmm. career or in your your film school career, like I wonder why you didn't like continue to try to readjust and try to try I, I come back I at it another way. I was surprised by
1: that as well. I think everyone, myself included, thought you know when we had the success at Quest and now I could do whatever I wanted, um, that I would just immediately start writing and directing, and it just didn't feel it wasn't. What I wanted to do anymore.
0: Well, that's an important message in and of itself. Because to tell people, you know, like, look, follow your, your heart's content don't be trapped in your earliest ideas. If you have an idea early on that, you know, I'm going to become this. And then somewhere along the line, you discover this new interest that kind of supersedes the other one and, and surpasses it. Mm. Follow that one. You know, you don't, you, don't ha- like, you don't have to say, oh, I thought you were a filmmaker. Right. I was for a little while. You know, like you could do whatever the fuck you want. I mean, you could find a, a million different pathways and a million different avenues. But ultimately, what's going to resonate the most with people, something that you're actually passionate about. Right. You really feel, really feel, not faking it, not trying to, you know, establish some sort of a narrative that you think is going to be successful with people or resonate with people. But what do you actually feel? And if you can figure that out, man, you know, that's uh, that seems to be like... The, the great pieces of art, the great works, you know, that, that people have created, that have, the opportunities that I've got a chance to talk to people that have done some pretty amazing shit, It's all a, the, it was all like an interest. It was all an, a thought that they had that they followed through all the way and then got immersed in it, mm. you know, but it was never thinking about it in terms of the ultimate eventual result. You know, that's why I think it's interesting that you're approaching this in... You don't just have an idea to make something creative and, and fascinating and fulfilling to enjoy, but you also want to establish some sort of a narrative that changes the way people look at the reality around them.
1: Yeah, definitely. And when I when I think about what I'm really driven by, and this was a, almost a confession to my team, was I don't care about, I love movies. And I love The path that we're on right now, but I don't love it enough to risk my fortune and to work as hard as I'm working that just never would have drawn me back. Mm. So what I do care enough about to put everything at risk and to work as hard as I'm working is pulling people out of the matrix. And I know those are my words that maybe don't get people to see what I mean. So the kid that I big brothered for just to give you an idea. So his name was Rashawn. An amazing kid. He was very disruptive in class. He was drug and alcohol impacted, but still really bright. But they had him on like Ritalin or something. I honestly don't know what, but it stunted his growth. He was really small, hyper aggressive. Um, He was adopted and his mother was abusing him, but I didn't know that. And I'm very sad. I was just too young and I just, I didn't know what was going on. Even though looking back, you suddenly realize, holy hell, there were so many clues, Um, but I didn't pick up on them. And he just living a life that is, um, is horrible and growing up in the inner cities as well on top of all that. And so I come and of course there, he's the student they give me Mm. and all I'm supposed to do is for eight weeks, I'm just supposed to come in and help him do his homework. And so he's very clever. So I would show up and for an hour, he would ignore me. He would get in fights. He would push me away. And then like five minutes before I'd have to leave, I'd say, I have to leave. And he would start crying and freaking out. Please, no, just stay. Help me with my homework. And so finally, I'd be like, all right, I'm going to help you. But if you don't right now get to work, I'm leaving. And so then he would be an angel and do his homework. And then week two was exactly the same and three and four and five. And I thought this fucking kid is playing me like he's like trolling me in mm-hmm. real life. Yeah. And at week six, they tell you, hey, warn them that you're only coming two more weeks so that they're not surprised. Cool. Week six, I tell him, hey, just, so you know, I'm only coming two more times. And he goes nuclear freaks the fuck out. Like it was so shocking. Like I didn't have experience with kids, so he's flipping out. And this was already a kid with behavioral problems. So I was just like, what the fuck is going on? And finally, uh, slowly, all too slowly, I realized, okay, wait, is this because I just told you I'm leaving? And he's like, yes. And I said, look, largely just to calm him down. As long as I live in Los Angeles, I will help you do your homework, but you have to do it the second I get here. Deal? And he said, deal. So that turns into an eight-year relationship where it became way more than helping him with his homework. I started taking him to movies and trying to show him just a different side of life and um, took him on this thing called Troy Camp. So we got to see the mountains for the first time and just oh, wow. all like really, really getting involved in his life. And then when his, it finally came out that his stepmother or his adoptive mother was beating him, um, from what I heard – she was chasing him down the street with a baseball bat. And I just Aww. like, I literally couldn't believe that was real. And so they took him away immediately. And I was the first phone call. And his lawyer called me and said, he has asked that you be the ward of the court or the guardian to help him through the court system. And so I helped him do that and helped him get into foster care. And, and I'm just looking at him going, I know where this ends up. Like I know where this ends up and it isn't good. And so that was the seed, right? I didn't think that I'm going to dedicate my life to helping people like this. Wasn't that, but it planted a seed and it really fucked with me. And I I stayed involved with him in foster care for a couple of years, but then they just moved him so far away that it was, I was broke at the time. It just, was too far away. So, but that stayed with me. And then when I started um, at Quest and we were helping all these kids or working with all these kids and I saw how extraordinary they were, which by the way, drug dealers, some of them are amazing entrepreneurs. And so it became this notion in my, it's unreal, dude. I'll tell you some stories sometime. I'm sure. Absolutely fucking crazy. And I thought, Jesus, you're a better entrepreneur than I am. Like, they're telling me how they watch like the the cop cars and when they change shifts and how they know that they're being identified by their cars and so they change cars all the time. It's crazy. And so I'm like, Jesus, it gave me this concept that I called mining for astronauts. And I'm like, in here, in here somewhere, in here being the ghetto, are some of the most amazing minds I've ever come across. And these guys could be anything. They could be fucking astronauts, right? Like whatever they wanted, but they don't believe they can. And when I would interview them, it was nuts. So imagine you're interviewing and I came up with just like a a fast way where I didn't have to think, I could just ask the same questions. And one of the questions was, a magic genie shows up. He's going to grant you one wish and one wish only. You can't wish for more wishes. You can't cure cancer bring anybody back from the dead. It's got to be something for yourself. What do you wish for? Universally, to a person, they all said a job. Okay, that makes sense. You, th- you think that's what I want to hear, so you're trying to get a job, so you can tell me you want a job. Then when we get past that bullshit, and I tell you obviously that's not true, like, what do you really want? Like, what's a job meant to get you? Money. Okay, do you want money, or is it something else? No, it's money. Awesome, man. It's a magic genie. You can ask for whatever you want. What do you want? You know what answer every single one of them gave me what? one million dollars. You can't buy a fucking house for a million dollars. Okay. It was so crazy. It's a magic genie, Joe. Like you can ask for a trillion dollars, but their frame of reference was so small. One guy, this was like the one exception said he wanted an airport. <laughs> I found that so weird. So I had to push on that one. I was like, why an airport? And he said, because business guys come through the airport and I was like, okay. What, what good does that do you? And he said, because then they can teach me about business. Now, think about that for a second. <laughs> How fucking many steps removed are you from what you actually want? Yeah. But that's, like, they, they don't... Ha- you say I'm a systematic thinker, right? Uh-huh. So I had to learn that. That's not where I started. So... I spent, thankfully, one of the things I'm most grateful for in my life, I have to learn everything the hard way. But because I learned things the hard way, then I can show other people what I did, where I fell down, and how hopefully they
0: can avoid some of the mistakes. Now, most people ignore me. I'm well aware of that. But you, but you have a desire to teach people this. This is what, what's interesting. Yes. You're not just internalizing this. This is not just yourself. Correct.
1: And I look, I'm wired for compassion. I really enjoy Other people succeeding. Uh, The, my favorite example of that is when I was five, so my sister would have been eight and a half. Um, I pretended not to see some Easter eggs so that she would win the Easter egg hunt because she cared about winning and I didn't. So that's just, a natural inclination that I have that I've fed into, that I've chosen Hmm. to take pride in. Um, And because of that, look, it would be a way cooler story if I said, I met this kid Rashawn and it changed my life forever and I knew I had to dedicate myself to helping people. It didn't. I met Rashawn and then spent almost a decade chasing money. Right. That's the truth. So, but in that process, like that way that I felt in those moments where I had hoped that he would do something, when I met the kids that were working on the production line and I could see, fuck, I am one of them literally came to me. He's absolutely hysterical. He's in tears. And he, um, he was like, you're like my fuck and stopped himself. And I thought, obviously he was about to say, you're like my father, but that felt weird for him. So he stopped and said, you're like my older brother. And he was like, I've just never had anybody that actually cared about me. So now mix that with the fact that I'm only interested in scale and maybe I would be, what a, does that mean? Doing I, touching 10 people and like having 10 people show up at my funeral and just be like this motherfucker changed my life. And because of him, like my 18 grandkids and all that, like they're going to have a better life that just doesn't do it for me. And I'm being honest. Maybe, maybe I am a worse person because of this. I honestly don't care. It's just true. It's who I am. So scale is interesting. Having, I would much rather touch A million people and none of them know who I am and know that a million people's lives are better off than touch 10 and they credit it all to me it's just way more interesting to me at scale now I also believe that A 501c3 nonprofit is like the worst way in the world to do something if you're trying to do good. Finding a way to do it through commerce where it's a self-sustaining economic engine, that's interesting. Because the thing that, like, this is so weird to me, if you have a nonprofit, you have to go beg, literally beg money from people that have a for-profit company that have figured out how to make money. They probably have a little bit of guilt, so they want to give money to you. It is the weirdest dynamic ever. Rather than just building a company that at its core is trying to do something good and awesome that you can be proud of i'm fucking if i crash and burn i'll still be proud of what i was trying to accomplish i believe in it It makes me feel good to want to do amazing shit for people i actually believe that this is the way that you give somebody a belief system that is antagonistic to acquiring a new belief system Uh, because to do it at scale they can't want it right the people the people that want to change their physique do they eat right They exercise and they get results. And the people that don't, and there are people that I love very much in my life, and I'm going to lose them too early because they don't want to eat better. So the only solution I could think of was there's no option everything is healthy and delicious. So all the things that you want to eat, you can. And so that was the mission at Quest. Certainly while I was there, that was the mission at Quest. We are going to find, what are those? It was like 26 categories that we thought got people into trouble. And we are going to make a healthy version of each and every one of those motherfuckers. And that was the mission. So that there would literally be nowhere for people to go to eat badly. Because they could just pursue their most base instincts of just gluttonous. Give me carbs, sugar, salt. I want it all fat. Ah." And that they'd be eating a healthy version, but it felt and tasted just like that. So our first marketing message was stop compromising. So that's a long way of saying it's all about leveraging people's behavior against them to get them to make the right changes. And I believe that the way that we're going to do this, we live in a unique time where I can go in fucking microphones like this and I can explain to people how to build a mindset. I do this literally. I put out probably six or seven hours worth of content every fucking week. What? Just telling... Yeah. 100%. Really? The day you're ready to come on my show, be rob which people have been begging for forever. What's your show? Impact Theory. What is that? So Impact Theory is me bringing on people like you that have had just unbelievable success and finding out what are the, the things that you did to get there. So uh, my interview style is, I'll know more about you than your own mother. You'll show up, you'll get a little unnerved because how the fuck did I figure all this stuff out? But then we can have a really cool interview because wherever you want to go, I'm going to be able to go. I'm not a journalist. I want you to shine. You've, ins- you've literally inspired me, by the way. I told you a little bit about why when we first started talking. Um, I- you're the only person that makes me sweat from diversity. Okay, because I ah, fuck that's like my thing as an interviewer, dude. Like, I can go, I can interview anybody, it doesn't matter. But then I saw your fucking show and I realized I can't interview a porn star. Um, I probably would suck with Hannibal Burris, somebody who's just fucking funny and needs somebody to go back and forth with. And I realized, but fucking Joe can do Dominic D'Agostino like on one day and then immediately turn around and do like porn jokes. Uh, Anyway, so would love to bring on people like you come on because what it all started back at quest. I have this 25 point bullet belief system that I wanted everyone in the company to understand. I used to be an employee. I had an employee's mentality. And here are the 25 things I had to do to my mind to become an entrepreneur and generate wealth in my life and feel like I was in control of my life. Nobody else controlled my destiny but me. Here are the 25 things. I had this unending fear that people were going to memorize the fucking bullet points and they wouldn't live them. So I wanted to create a show where they, because it's hardest to impact those closest to you. Don't know if you've experienced that. I certainly have. So but,
0: uh, say, say that again. so again. It's like hardest to mom. impact
1: those that are closest to you? Yeah. How, I can,
0: why is it hardest? <sighs>
1: I think it's because there's too much
0: familiarity. My mom looks at Impact, me. Impact, you mean in a way like inspire positive. them? Yeah. Right. But not even through your own success? You don't think that it, it inspires them? Like my mom is
1: finally starting to th- say things like, tell me a little bit more about whatever. Mm-hmm. But uh, for a long is that, time. But is that impacting
0: nothing. her or is she just curious?
1: Not yet. She's asking it in the way that like, mm-hmm. hey, I'm actually interested in making that change. But I... I'll just speak for myself in my life for whatever inadequacy that I have It's been very hard for me to impact those closest to me So what I wanted to do at quest was bring in people that were wildly successful and I Wanted unprompted I wanted the audience to see you're gonna hear them say the same things I say even though we don't know each other and time after time after time, they heard people going through. These people have never seen the 25 bullet points, but they would go through like, I mean, maybe it was like six or seven of them. It's not going to be exactly the same, but they would touch on so many. It was fucking freaky. And so that really started to play into, OK, we're, we're now moving into a different era where you can step forward. And I think transparency and authenticity are a big fucking deal in, in companies today. I think that Gen Z is going to demand it. And I think any company that hides. Do you say Gen Z? Gen Z, yeah.
0: Is that Generation Z? Is that we are yeah. talking
1: about? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have you not heard that? No. Oh, man, no. welcome. You're going to hear it everywhere now. So it, Is that got the new thing that the
0: kids are saying? There's yeah, new kids well, coming up, Generation Z? Gen- marketers Jamie? Heard are this? saying it.
1: Mm. Oh, if you type in Gen Z, you get like a bazillion I'm sure. results. So um, Gen Zers are known for, like, they, they say... That they're the altruistic generation. Mm. So these people are not comfortable with big business. And I think that they're going to demand a level of transparency into the people that are running the company. And the people that get that, Elon Musk, um, um, Richard Branson, people that aren't afraid to, like, really step out front, Mm -hmm. then people just resonate with that. And so that is why I do all this. That's why I'm stepping out front. That's why I want people to know who I am and what I'm doing. I need to build a community. If we're going to pull off this mission impossible, of building the studio, that's all got to happen. So, um, that's why I create all this content. That's why I bring people on that have inspired me. And my goal is just to set them up. So I want everyone to walk away from my show going like off camera, behind the scenes. Like that was the best interview I've ever done. So. Um, yeah, that's, that's like my mission. I just want people to see it from all these different angles hear all these different people say it. And quite frankly, selfishly, I want to learn. And so one, the biggest, the thing that probably impacted my life the most was when I stopped building my ego around being smart and I started building my ego around being a learner and being super humble, and sitting at people's feet, and just wanting to listen and learn, um, and then immediately put what I learned into action. So the show is also wildly selfish for me and the staff, because we get to meet incredible people that have just super empowering wisdom. And so I believe that the dual track of the social content was just on the nose, right? You would come on the show and you would just tell us like how you did it. You would talk about like um how you got into stand up comedy. Oh, I got into stand-up comedy because I was a fucking funny guy when everybody else was nervous, right? But then like it actually has to become a craft and you gotta do it over and over and over and talking about that grind and how you get good over time mm-hmm. and, and people are going to trip the fuck out and just like go, whoa, maybe that's exactly what I need to do, which is a message I think a lot of people need right now, which is it's a long grind. Yeah, so it's stuff like that, but that's
0: impacted Tom, I got to wrap this up, but for thank sure. you very much, man. I My appreciate pleasure. it, and good luck. It's a very ambitious project, and uh, I'm certainly going to be watching. Awesome, man! Well, thanks, thanks for man. having me on. Thanks it's for starting pleasure. Quest. I really love your bars. You guys are awesome. Thank you. All right, folks. See you. Uh, see you on Friday. Bye. Thank you, everybody, for tuning into the podcast, and thank you to Five Four Club. Ooh, go to. 54 F I V E F O U R Club.com and use the promo code Rogan and you'll save 50% off your first package and they'll give you a free pair of sunglasses. That's 54club.com and use the promo code Rogan. Thank you. Also to texture. Why well, just subscribe to a few magazines, ladies and gentlemen. You can get fucking hundreds of them. And you can try it out for free for 14 days when you go to texture.com forward slash Rogan. We did it. We are one episode away. We, we cheated. We did the, the one with uh, Brendan Schaub and I. We made it a, uh, a fight breakdown. That was so that we'd get to 1,000 on Friday. That's the next podcast, folks. And that one will have the great Joey Diaz and the great Tom Segura. I cannot fucking wait. And that is this Friday. Woo! And then we have a sold-out show that night at the Comedy Store. Very excited. Okay. That's it for today. Thanks for tuning in. Appreciate you guys very much. And uh, um, I just try to do my best. That's what I try to do. Okay. Love you. Bye.